This is the Do Big Things Podcast, where we want to inspire you to do big things. This podcast is brought to you by Big Things Crewing, a service for ultra runners from beginner to elite. Not only can we get you trained up, but we can also crew you into the finish line. Find us at big-things-crewing.com. Now, here is your host, Adam McRoberts. Hey, welcome guys to the Do Big Things podcast. This is episode number 69. I'm guessing there's a joke there somewhere, but I digress. It is March 23rd, and I'm coming to you from Boulder, Colorado. I've got a fantastic guest for you guys this week. Mr. Paul Devonay is a big mountain climber. And by big mountain, I mean the biggest. He is a seven summit hopeful. He's done six of the seven, leaving the best for last, Mount Everest. He has had some attempts out there, and on paper, he should have been able to complete it by now. He's got the knowledge, he's got the proper training, he's put the time and the dedication into it. However, his latest Everest attempt was in 2015, and he was out there when there was a catastrophic avalanche up there that claimed the lives of, I believe it was 19 people. He was a part of that disaster, as well as everything that goes along with the aftermath of something like that. His story is incredible. Uh, he's done lots of other podcasts and TED Talks on the subject, and if you check out his website, irish7summits.com, you can find all kinds of links about it and video that was actually taken during the disaster. I highly recommend you guys checking it out and listening to this man's story. It was an honor to have him on the show, and it was also an honor to have my man, Mr. John Denise, as a co-host for this one. You can hear my conversations with John on episodes 20 and 34. I'm excited for this conversation because it's real and intense, and I love real and intense. I think you guys are going to dig it as well. This podcast is brought to you by On Pace Wellness. Listen to me, you guys. Everyone wants to be a badass and an ultramarathon finisher, but no one wants to do the work. <laughs> uh, part of the work is, you know, finding someone that can help you with your diet. If you had a Ferrari, would you put garbage fuel into it? No, I don't think so. You would take care of it and you'd find the best fuel you can find for it. Well, my friends... You are the Ferrari in this scenario. Do me a solid. Stop what you're doing right now and look at On Pace Wellness on Instagram and peep out the high-end Olympic caliber clients he's working with. Will Benitez is working with some of the best athletes in the world and he's helping them find even more success. This guy knows what he's talking about when it comes to nutrition. He doesn't like the word diet, as I'm sure most of you don't either. He can help you no matter what your eating habits are. Vegan, paleo, keto, intermittent fasting, whatever you got, he'll listen to you. And he will work with you and 
you know, make some suggestions and tweaks that will help you burn down 2021 in a big way. You want to take your fitness to the next level? Contact On Pace Wellness. Maybe you're not an elite athlete and you just want to be healthier and feel better on the day-to-day. Contact On Pace Wellness. Mention this podcast and he's going to give you 10% discount to get your uh, nutrition properly tuned up for success. This podcast is also brought to you by Athletic Brewing. Great tasting, non-alcoholic beer that's going to blow your mind. This isn't your standard O'Doul's that no one wants to drink. This is a high-end craft beer that tastes exactly like or better than the dark and hoppy beers you guys enjoy. They are a great company to partner with, and I'm not just saying that because I'm an ambassador. Uh, I don't drink alcohol anymore, but I can still have a tasty beer without all the negative side effects. You can have one in the middle of the day. You can have one for breakfast if you want. You can have a couple at night and you don't have to worry about being groggy in the morning. There's no hangover with this stuff because there's no alcohol. To me, there is uh, you know, nothing better than having a cold one after a, a long, hot summer mountain run. And now I can enjoy a beer with my friends and not have to worry about driving home. I can't speak highly enough about these guys. Check out athleticbrewing.com. Use my discount code, McRobertsA20, all caps, for 20% off some of the best NA beer around. Buy two six-packs or more, and you don't have to worry about the shipping costs either. Who does that? Athletic Brewing does that. Enjoy the taste without the hangover. All right, guys, I'm excited for this one. Put your hands together for Mr. Paul Debonet. And my co-host for the day, Mr. John Denise. Life is short. Do big things, baby. All right. Welcome, guys. I'm super pumped about this. Um, We've got uh, a gentleman here who... uh, has, has climbed some of the biggest mountains in the world while uh, my, my co-host for the day, John Denise and I are piddling around with mountains in Colorado. So <laughs> we're just doing the little ones while our guest today is, has done some of the biggest, biggest ones in the world. So this should be a good conversation. Um, Paul, you mind uh, just giving us a quick intro and telling us who you are? Hi, my name is Paul Devaney. Um, I'm from, originally from Ireland. And uh, I'm attempting to complete the seven summits. So I've, I've climbed six of them so far. And there's one stubborn summit left to go. <laughs> it sounds like you've, uh, you've been out there for some important life lessons uh, on Everest. Uh, you know, it, it's probably going to happen one day. But uh, up till now, that, that mountain is, has been teaching you some important lessons. So I'm, I'm looking forward to diving in here. For sure. It's, it's kicked my ass a few times. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. The nature always wins, man. So, and my co-host for the day, John Denise, uh, thanks for being here, buddy. Appreciate you. Yeah. My, my pleasure. It's, uh, it's great to be w- with you guys. And I was just thinking this morning, uh, you guys are special mountain friends of mine, right? We, Adam, we've spent some time together, but not a ton of time. Uh, and Paul, we've just kind of crossed paths, uh, of, over in Nepal and, 
uh, I have, you know, it's just reflecting on the friends, the amazing friends that I have, where we've just shared some amazing, um, intense experiences. Uh, and, you know, Adam in 2016, right, the first time I met you was, we were kind of familiarizing ourselves or you had more familiarity, but I was just getting introduced to the, uh, the Nolan's 14 line and we were out on some training stuff together and we did my first attempt in 2016. Uh, we all started out together and it's just an indelible, uh, irreplaceable experience that we shared. And Paul, we ran into each other in the, in the Kumbu. Um, you were on your way to Everest and uh, my, my wife, Jennifer, and myself, we were with another, another group uh, looking to climb a couple peaks right around Everest and just heading up to Kumbu. And uh, that was that one of the fateful years you were over there, Paul, in 2015, uh, right before the earthquake hit and, uh, and that incredible experience. So um, yeah, it's just great to, it's always great to reconnect with you guys and share those things and also learn more about each other. So this is great. Totally, yeah. Yeah, I love how the mountains just uh, form like a, just such a bond between people. And uh, Paul, this is the first time you and I have ever met, but uh, there's still a, a pretty big amount of respect. You know, it's like, I know some of the things that you've been up against. I, I watched your TED talk a couple of times and uh, a couple other videos. And uh, so I know you've got some great stories. And yeah, John and I have, have been out there and, and shared some some blood and sweat uh, a couple of times over the years. So Good stuff, guys. Um, yeah. Um, Paul, how'd you get into this world? How did it all start for you? You know, I started in my mid-20s, so it wasn't the, it wasn't something that I loved from a kid. Um, I got into it over in Hong Kong, believe it or not. I, I was uh, sent over there by my company to take up a role for a year back in 2005. And I'd been doing lots of training out there, and it's pretty hot and pretty humid. Um, and I was doing Gaelic football. I don't know if you've ever heard of Gaelic football, but it's the national sport in Ireland. Oh, yeah. And it's a bit like a cross between soccer and rugby, I suppose. Um, a little bit more like Australian rules, if you've ever seen that. And uh, I was playing that in Hong Kong, and there's a tournament out there. We were playing in the All-China tournament. We were playing in an Asian tournament against different countries. Um, and so we were putting in the hours, doing a lot of this high humid, this, this humid hot training um and somebody in the office said to me you know before you head back to base at the end of your assignment you should go to base camp because you put in all that effort you'd probably run up there <laughs> so um they were wrong about that <laughs> um, so i done some training i bought some gear i, I went to Kathmandu, and myself and the sherpa took off on, on the route up to everest base camp in october 2005 uh, and i'd never really climbed anything more than the stairs before that and <laughs> I, I got my, you know, I got my backside kicked with the altitude. I learned a few lessons there, but I thought it was the most wonderful thing. Uh, I didn't really think that it was all that, you know, accessible to normal people to go do things like that, even treks. Um, and I got up to base camp and there's a peak beside base camp called Calipatar. And I ran up that and I looked around and it was, it was just like you were in space, you know, on a different planet. And mm -hmm. it, it, I thought this is the most extraordinary experience you could possibly have while being really good for you while having time out of the office and away from all of the busy stuff of life um and i thought this is interesting i want some more of this and i happened to read a book on the way to base i read the worst book you could possibly read it's so, so stereotypical i read the into thin air book on the way up to base camp um and that was about the worst disaster in the history of everest and it mentioned the seven summits and i thought i might give those a crack 
And it really was just a, a lot of really ambitious thinking on the back of a really extraordinary experience. Sounds like you were inspired, Paul. <laughs> just yeah, inspired sure. by what you saw. And, yeah. You just yeah. fell in love with the mountains out there. How old were you at this time? 25, maybe. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I was I was old enough to know to know better. Um, but <laughs> um, I grew up in, in a place that's really flat in Ireland, and we have a hill behind our house which is about nine hundred feet, and that's the highest point in the Midlands in Ireland. So we used to go up and down that as kids. But I, I couldn't say that I had an adventurous streak for the mountains beyond that. But when I got into my twenties, I found it was a massive um, a tonic to all of. The, the other things in life and, and work was incredibly busy when isn't it and I, I thought well this is amazing that you can actually spend your vacation doing this rather than other things um, and it opened up a whole new world because I thought if you can trek to base camp what else can you do that I didn't think you could do um, in the outdoors and you know you, you really have to have your eyes opened on that sometimes because it doesn't come naturally to realize that you can do some of these you know big feats the Nolan 14, all those things, you know, someone has to really, either somebody opens your eyes for you, or you have that sort of experience where you accidentally walk into it and realize, wow, this is like, you know, this is like the, the lion, the witch in the wardrobe. What have I discovered here? <laughs> <laughs> did you have a mentor at that time to show you around or did you just jump right into this on your own? Uh, no, I, I just jumped right into it. Um, wow. I, I probably had loads of people in Hong Kong watching with a smile on their face, wondering what the hell was going to happen. Um, but no, I, 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 I formed a great friendship with the, with the Sherpa that I had that, that day. Okay. And I got, I got quite sick on that journey because I, I don't know whether I, it was a combination of what I ate or altitude hitting me for the first time while I was going at a bit of a pace. But I, I got sick and I emptied myself out entirely on that trip and I stumbled to base camp against the doctor's orders but it didn't diminish even like a tiny bit of what I thought was the wonder of the whole thing. But no, when I, when I came back, I searched for people that might know better than me um, <laughs> to work out, to work out, okay, well, you know, this is, you can do what you want in this space, but there are some rules and there are, there's a, there's a foundation that you should try and get here, which will make this entirely more pleasurable than just bolting straight into everything from here on. Um, remind me, what? Uh, how, how high is base camp again? Base camp is about 17,000 feet, in around 70, that 17,500 feet. Okay. Um, so, yeah, for a first-timer to altitude, that was, that was a shock. Um, but, you know, I fell in love with it, and I thought, I wonder how I could persuade other people to try this again somewhere. So that's where, that's where the plan for the Seven Summits kind of came together with a bunch of my buddies from, from college. Uh. So almost right away, you're looking at the seven summits and that's the next goal after, after you did base camp for the first time. Yeah, I came back to Hong Kong. It was late, late on in 2005 and, and there was a, I, these are some of the things that happened and it's incredible fate, but it was a film festival in Hong Kong and they were showing a movie about Kilimanjaro. So I went in and I watched this movie and it was just taking you up the whole way up through every part of climbing the mountain. And I thought that's like, not that dif different from what I've just done. So let's see if we can do that. So when I got back, I, I, I got everyone together and asked who wanted to go on this adventure from, from my class. I, I went to a place called the University of Limerick, which sounds mm. fake, but is real. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and we'd all done aerospace engineering. So, you know, everyone was doing their jobs, getting on with their lives. And I just 
collected them together and said, who wants to do this? Um, and a bunch of folks, but five folks came back and said, yeah, yeah, we'll give this a go. So we trained for about a year and went off and done Kilimanjaro. And that was the first attempt at seeing, could we push the boundaries a little bit? And could we start the journey, even though we had no idea how to finish it? We had no idea of our capability for the back end of this journey. We certainly didn't. I never started any of it thinking I could probably climb Everest. I didn't think I could climb any of the peaks that I was about to face until I had finished the preparation and talked myself up and realized, yeah, I've probably got what, I've, what it takes for this one, but not the next one. And just kept doing that until you eventually surprise yourself. And I remember having that experience of being very surprised coming off Denali and thinking, we climbed Denali. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, how did that happen? Yeah. Um, you know, and these things didn't happen by accident. They happened through, you know, years spent in the Alps and years spent in Scotland and bad weather and years spent in Ireland on peaks. But you're still surprised that you, you got up and down that thing. Um, and yeah, there's another one ticked off the list. And before you know it, you're flying through your seven. Wow. That's the, uh, like Adam, what, what is it? One of your uh, earlier podcasts with your friend, was it the, the, the Punisher? Yeah, was Ryan it, Dexter. What is it, the, uh, the, the seed of possibility or what, what's that? What's oh that crazy gosh, I wish I, I remember exactly how he put it. Yeah, yeah, but, something like that. It's, it's just like, yeah, I know, John, you've been through that too. It's just like yeah. you have this idea in your head. Like, I wonder if I could ever do this. And then you just start training for it. And before long, you're looking back going, I can't believe I just did that. Yeah. And even more than that, just it's, it's things that, you know, you look, you, you look at and, you know, past versions of yourself and you see things like climbing Everest or whatever, you know, Nolan's or running a hundred miles. And mm -hmm. like, you hear about these things and like, okay, those are only like the specialist of people who can do those things, who can even consider doing those things. But it's inspiring to know that, you know, regular people, uh, if you have a passion for it, you can approach those things and, you know, sometimes you fail, but, you know, it's within the realm of, of, poss of possibility. We're all human beings. And, uh, you know, I just find that incredibly inspiring. And uh, it sounds like, you know, Paul, we've all been touched by that same thing as mm -hmm. we see these big things that, uh, you know, just seem so out of reach for, you know, ordinary people. And uh, if you want to do it, you can do it. If you want to put in the time and, uh, put in the, the, do the process, uh, to get yourself in a position to do that. It's, it's, it's amazing and inspiring. Totally. So Paul, with, with Everest, I didn't realize that you had that first experience with Everest. So going back there, it would kind of be a full circle thing for you, I guess. huh? Yeah. Yeah. It would, um, going back the second time wasn't a decision made lightly. Um, and it was probably propelled more by the fact that going the first time had taken two years of full-time preparation to get to it. And, you know, you were gonna add another year to it rather than take a break, let life pass you by and then try and start again. And it was more the momentum that, that drove that decision more than anything else. There was a lot of other factors too. It was gonna to be costly to go back. It was gonna be, well, it wasn't as traumatic the first time around as it was the second time around, which we get into. But um, sometimes you have to go with the momentum as well. Because, you know, people will say to you, the mountain's always there. There'll always be an opportunity to climb it. The mountain will always be there, but there won't always be the opportunity. You know, the, the way you arrange your life doesn't necessarily always pre present that, that, you know, Goldilocks conditions that say, right, this is good now to do it. Mm -hmm. 
that that falls in a period that you you've constructed or you allowed your life to have it in um and so you kind of have to roll with the momentum when the momentum's there and that's very much how i felt going back in 2015. Mm-hmm. that's a good point I, I feel that way too with just life in general i mean I, sometimes i i say you know i'm in a hurry uh you know, I'm 52 now, and I know oh, I'm not always going to have the health that I have now. And I want to do things uh, in life. And uh, you know, later in life, there there are maybe you know other things I do that maybe aren't as physical. But uh, I want to take advantage of the health that I have now, and the vigor and the passion that I have now for doing these things. And passion is the is an important element because the fire in your belly doesn't burn the same all the time for everything. You pick up a new passion, and you know your fire—the fire will burn for that. Um, I've certainly noticed after I came back from 2015 that the fire went out entirely after that experience, and I had to work on the fire to bring it back again. You know, it's it's a process rather than just a thing that's always there. And people would say, well, that might mean it's not a true passion, but I think passions can do that as well. Um, you know, that it, it it has its place in your life, and it it burns red hot and it has to if you want to go do something big because you won't achieve it if it's not burning red hot but it doesn't always burn red hot because you wear yourself out as a human being if you live every day like that Mm -hmm. yeah well while we're on that subject let's go into that like so eventually we're going to go back and talk about what happened in 2015 but um over the last six years is is that something that you've been focused on or you're you're working on you're trying to sort of get that that fire back um is that something you consciously are working towards or is that something you're just kind of putting on the back burner for now and thinking you know maybe someday or maybe not at all now i'm definitely working towards it um and that there's been different phases for that there's been the financial work towards it which means getting your business and that side of your life, you know, in the right place. Sure. And there's the physical side of it. Um, there's the passion side of it. And then there's the, when is the right time to go as well? Um, and one of the issues I've had in the last couple of years is just the sheer crowding has meant that you, you know, for a particular season, you just switched off and said, no, I'm not going. Yeah. Um, you know, this year, for example, if, if we'd all sorted out the pandemic last year, like we should have, um, this year would be so packed that you would not want to be anywhere near mm. Nepal this year. Yeah. Mm. Now, as it happens, it probably won't be all that packed, but that leaves the question of whether you should be going at all. Um, and next year is going to be the same. So, you know, at what point do you pick the right conditions where it isn't uber packed? Or if you wait too long, does, just, does the commercialization just become so large that the opportunity to try and recreate a 2014 or a 2015 expedition that you had in your mind isn't there and if that reality is there then you have to reset and figure out well what other preparation do i have to do for cues you know how do i get how do i retrain this now to be able to climb a different mountain because really it's a different mountain at that point so yeah i think that's your question it's it's definitely on my radar i would have liked to have gone last year i would have liked to have gone this year i would like to go next year but i think it'll probably be slightly beyond that just because I, I don't want to run into big crowds and find then that, you know, you, you, you run out of luck and it becomes a lot, you, you, you offer up a lot of all of your skill and you replace it with luck and other things when you start standing in queues. Mm-hmm. 
I was going to ask you about the, the the how you felt about the crowding, uh, Paul, as well. And I, I know your first, well, three times over there, you've gone up the Kumbu from the south side. Do you have have you had any consideration of maybe trying from the north side? I know that's even getting that's even more uh, probably not as crowded as the south side now, but going from a nor the north side from Tibet uh, or you know. West Ridge, Hornbein, uh, Kular. <laughs> I, I think my, my gut reaction is to is to change it up and go from the north side, partly because you're climbing a different mountain then. Um, so whatever hangups you might have, whatever you're carrying over from the experiences in 2014 and 15, you don't have them on the north side of Everest per se, because you're not walking through the same conditions. It takes out the the, the icefall, which is a huge unknown um, every year. So it takes that out of the equation, but the north side has its challenges too. There's not much rescue capability that side. And, you know, how many more years can I not say anything about Taiwan or, you know, Tibet or the, the, the situation with the Uyghurs online, and then I'm not going to be able to get into the north side of Everest. So, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of factors to take into account. From a climbing perspective, I think I would prefer to go back and climb it from the north side. Yeah, and I understand those, those sides, those issues from the, the the Chinese side too, from the Tibet side. A, a, a year or so after we were over there, we considered uh, doing an expedition to Choyu, um, and we went back and forth, back and forth. And one of the things that was considering for us is, I, is the so I'm kind of not wanting to support some of the some of the political issues over there uh, with the, the Chinese and how they 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 handle uh, Tibet. Uh, so that was a consideration as well. Uh, yeah, it's becoming a it's becoming a tricky decision to make, and if you leave it too long, there'll be a highway to base camp on the north side. Um, if you leave it too long, the rules will be so stifling that you know it, you may not want to do it. Um, I've sometimes wondered if it wasn't one of the seven, would I have any interest at all in climbing it? Um, because my interest is in the Seven Summits Challenge, and that's what I set myself, and I, I really want to finish it, and I've so, come so close now. Um, but if you detach the mountain from the, from the you know, the challenge, mm -hmm. individually, the mountain has a lot of problems, and, you know, it's, is it responsible to add to those problems? Um, is it a nice mountain to climb? You know, there's certainly parts of the Kumbu that are amazing to be in, um, but when you get up into base camp during April and May, you, you know this, John, you get up into base camp, it's, it's just, it's a circus up there. Um, and that's not getting better. The numbers are getting larger. The restrictions are getting more nonsensical. Um, the rules come in every year, every year, brand new rules. Every year, they're even more laughable than the previous year. Uh, so there's not much being done to try and protect the integrity of a decent expedition on the south side. And that's not going to improve for a lot of very understandable reasons and primarily because this is a big moneymaker in Nepal. And if I lived in a country, you know, where there were, where the, the cost of living was as it is, um, where the ability to work and find good work, where the, you know, there's a lack of pensions, there's a lack of social security. If I lived in all of those conditions, you know, I'd want to bring as many people as I could up through the Kumbu, and I'd want to bring as many climbers as I could up Everest, and I'd want to make as much money as I could possibly make. And, and that money isn't going to waste. They're, you know, the people who make that money on the mountain are arguably putting it to better use than I ever would. They're putting their kids through school. They're raising the entire social floor. 
you know, this is a really important thing for Nepal and for the Nepalese. But, you know, when I look at it from a climbing perspective, it's, it's a problematic endeavor at the minute. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, let's rewind a little bit, Paul, if you don't mind. Um, so when you're in your mid to, to late twenties, um, like how did you approach this whole thing? What did your training look like? Like, I just think of, uh, the saying, you know, how do you eat an elephant? You eat it one bite at a time. And I'm just like thinking if you're in your, your twenties thinking, I want to do the seven summits. Like how how does that even start? So for Kilimanjaro, we, it was very low, um, low tech training. Uh, we would, there's a couple of us, um, based over in the UK at the time, and we would train in Derbyshire and up in Sheffield and up in the Peak District in the UK. And we might go up to the Lake District in the UK and climb a few peaks up there. There was nothing taller than 3,000 feet. Mm. So, you know, beggars can't be choosers. Right. So you, you just, you went up there, you got your mental strength, no problem at all, because the weather was usually pretty shocking. <laughs> um, but, you know, you made the best of what was there. And we would hike up and down these hills, go for extremely long hikes at the weekends, the rest of the time, training wasn't very technical. It was basically, you know, do as much strength work as you can and upper and lower body and just run as much as you could. Mm. Uh, I don't, John will hate me saying this, but I, I'm not a fan of running. I, I don't run well. Mm-hmm. Might be a better way of saying it. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm so in the same boat, probably. I'm not better than I run. We would go and run, but mostly we would just hike in the Lake District, in the Peach District, which is beautiful. It is, it, it's a lovely part of the world. Um, but you're not getting altitude. You know, you're not getting long, long, long stretches. You're not getting very steep slopes, none of that. Um, but we had the great advantage of having Scotland next door. And it's often said like about climbing in Scotland in wintertime is a bit like cutting the top off Everest and bringing it down to sea level. Mm. It's, it's incredible, you know, the amount of snow, the movement of snow, um, and the conditions are incredible. So we, we got ourselves a guide and, you know, we, we got them to teach us winter skills up there. Okay. Uh, you know, and we, we shut our mouths and opened our ears and took it all in mm-hmm. as much as we could. Um, so that was really, it, it was no more complex than that, I suppose, what, for the beginning. When we got past Kilimanjaro and we had to focus on Elbrus, we knew we were heading into like major cold weather conditions that we just weren't prepared for, had never been in. It was going to be totally different. Um, so we had to do more winter training. We had to get out to the Alps, start doing, you know, Alpine skills courses, start learning how to use equipment that we really only superficially held in our hand for photo shoots. Um, you know, you, you had to learn how to do it. You had to learn your crevasse rescue, um, all of this sort of stuff. And really, I think it was survival of the fittest at that point, because the people who didn't really like the whole process tended to just fade away and say, okay, this isn't for me anymore. And really the, the, the misery coefficient sometimes decided that if you weren't will, able or willing to put up with the misery in some of the cold days out in the mountains in England or Ireland, maybe this isn't, you know, for you, cause it's not a fair weather sport, but you have to kind of discover that for yourself, don't you? Mm. So that's what happened with the team. Some people discovered for themselves that this was more for them or less for them. Um, and those that kept going were the ones that really thought this is, this is for me. Um, and when we got past Elbrus, the training took up a notch. Um, I'd moved to America by then I was living in Connecticut and um, I used to go up to New Hampshire and I used to go across in the wintertime, all the peaks in New Hampshire. I used to go up to Monadnac, 
I think that's in, is it in Vermont? Um, and I used to hike up and down that as well. And I love that. And, and so the, the peaks got better and then the training got more intense. I would hire a personal trainer and I would, you know, I would take advice on how to, to do the right sort of training rather than the wrong sort of training, because we were just doing whatever training we thought was best to be fit because that's the world I'd come from and playing Gaelic football, but actually, you know, you had to train specific things. And if you didn't train right, or if you're overtrained, uh, you were going to get yourself in some big problems. Did you have like a core group of people that all had the same goal, like you know, four or five people that had the same goal of the seven summits and you guys are kind of communicating via email, phone calls and working on your training together or were you just kind of on your own? No, we had a group, but we had a group of about five of us from university okay. that started this. Um, and then as, as we went through the peaks, some people didn't make it and decided that's enough for them. And then we had people join us. Um, so we started with a group of five Irish, um, a couple of guys either immigrated or decided it wasn't for them anymore. Um, and then we had a German guy come on board when I moved to Berlin at one stage to work. Um, we had a, an Indian girl join us when we, after we'd gone and climbed uh, Denali and she joined us then for Aconcagua and for Vincent and for Everest. So we kind of picked up people as we went along who became kind of honorary Irish members of this Irish Seven Summits team. But we had a core group there and it eventually whittled down to a, a few of us, only a couple of us, um, that would sit down and do all of the planning and work out what's the best way to approach it um, and you know, kept to it the whole way through. You do find that points in it that you are the last man standing a little bit. Um, but then, you know, you meet people along the way and find actually, no, there's actually three or four of us. So you're never really alone. Totally. Yeah. So of that group, Paul, are you, are you the, the only one who's done the six so far to get? I'm the only one that's done six. There's one other guy, Niall, who I've done most of the seven with. He's on five. Um, he couldn't do the six when I was doing the six. He couldn't do Vincent at the time where we were doing it, uh, just for other reasons. So he's really, when we start this back up again and look at going back to Everest, you know, he'll be looking to try and make sure he gets Vincent done and then catch up. But so me and him have really been the last two standing to some degree. Mm -hmm. And this project, um, it, it took you like almost a decade to put together, right? Between all seven summits? Pretty much starting in 2007 with the first one. Okay. Uh, so when we hit Everest in 2014, we were seven years in, Wow. eight years in for 2015. And I tell you, we needed every one of those years. Yeah. We probably needed more um, and we would have taken more. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. We, we would not have been able to do some of the later peaks. We wouldn't, we done Denali in 2010. We were not in a position to do Denali before that, you know, um, at all we were not in a position to even think about Everest until we got to the point where we felt we were ready. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I, I know people, there's, there's an Irish guy who's done the seven summits in less than a year uh, and broke a world record at the time. And there are people who do them all in one year. And that's an extraordinary feat. I mean, it's an extraordinary logistic feat, <laughs> never mind even just mountaineering. Um, but, um, you know, that's for some folks who are best suited to it, that works. I think what I've found over the years is that I have to take it nice and slow on the mountains. I'm not a mountain goat. I love the mountains. I love being out in the mountains. I love climbing them. But when I get to the high stuff, I really have to take my time. Mm. I have to be careful. I have to do all of the planning. I'm an engineer, so I like to sit down and understand the plan. I like to understand the route. I like to understand the logic behind it. 
Um, I like to have structure in it. Um, but, you know, I've also learned over the years that my body likes certain things at altitude and doesn't like certain other things at altitude. And, you know, I've had experiences at altitude where I've, you know, not felt well at all. Um, and I've had to, you know, rein back and say, you know, you need to slow yourself down. Um, so I don't know whether I'm suited to all in one year, um, sure. whether I'm suited to all in 15 years, we'll soon find out. But um, it, it felt to me like, you know, stretching this thing as long as I did gave me the ability to get the winter skills in Scotland. It gave me the ability to get a number of different Alpine skill courses done in, in the Alps. Uh, I got to climb a whole lot of other peaks along the way. I got to become second nature familiar with my gear, which is always nice. You know, um, I got to climb a few things on my own. You know, I went out to do the advanced Alpine course in, in the Alps. And when it was finished, I stayed on for a whole week and I went and climbed a whole lot of peaks and climbed Mont Blanc on my own. And the, the, the confidence you get from being able to do things like that on your own as well um, is really great. And just to understand, to get to a point where you can understand your body to the level you need to, to listen to it when it becomes acutely important to do so. That's what I learned over time. I don't know how you learn that really quickly. Totally. Yeah. Does that sound familiar, John? That's a huge thing. I, I'm interested in that. And that's something that drives me as well. It's just learning about how my body works and also works under stress and what, what works and what doesn't food wise and rest wise and how fast I can go at certain times and over, over different types of terrain uh, for sure. Yeah. And it takes years to develop that knowledge too. And, always, uh, yeah, take, always learning always learning forever the student and and like you said paul being familiar with your gear um you know again that's just something you can't learn overnight you got to go out there and and almost get yourself into trouble a couple times so that you figure out how everything works um, absolutely right absolutely right and you get out there i think I, I got into incredibly difficult conditions one day up in new hampshire and realize, okay, I'm on my own. This is stupid. <laughs> uh, next time I need to plan this a little bit better so that if I get myself into a position I can't get myself out of, you know, I have a way of being able to contact people. Um, so you have to learn stupid lessons along. I, I'm, I'm not against people taking, you know, what might be perceived as silly risks. Um, if it's within the context of something that can be salvageable. Um, because people have to learn what risk feels like as well. That's important. And like the, the risk you have in the mountain is not a risk you can recreate in normal life. It's completely, you know, it's completely nuts, first of all, for anyone to put themselves into that risk. So you're already operating in, a, in, in an environment that doesn't make sense. Um, so you've accepted that clearly to, to put yourself there. But, you know, you've, you've got to kind of understand where the where the different different walls are around you and how far you can push them and how far you shouldn't push them and how far you can push yourself as well. I found out that I, you know, I, I was, I remember on Denali in particular, whinging and crying about, you know, this was really difficult, I'm really slow uh, um, when I got up near the summit. Um, and then you realize, no, no, you've got this extra load of, you know, energy stored away that comes out. You just have to draw it out of yourself or you have to create enough um, adrenaline to get it out of yourself but there's way more there and when you think you're done you've got eight hours ahead of you that you're not done for at all mm -hmm. uh, it's just about how you turn the situation you're in and the way you're feeling into something that gets you home um, and it takes a long while to work out for you what that mixture is and it's different for everyone some people i see people go to the mountain they're like mountain goats they can run across everything at speed 
Mm-hmm. And it's incredible. And they can get up and get down into the car at home. And I'll be slogging away slowly, slowly. And then on a good day, you know, you might be listening to something that really has, you know, it's really pushing you forward and you're thinking all positive and everything. And on another day, the weather may be crap. You've had a bad day the previous day before. Maybe your system's not feeling well. You've eaten badly. And now you still have to grind out the result. You have to get from A to B. That's the, that's the goal of the day, irrespective of how you feel or the context of how you came to be there. So uh, understanding how you get the best out of yourself. I think takes time. It's still changing, by the way. When I go back, if I go back, which I hope I do, whatever mix gets me up the mountain then at age, you know, I could be 45, 46, whatever it'll be, is different than the mix when I was climbing the mountain back when I was 36 or 37. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, so in 2015, you, you faced some adversity. There was some tragedy out there. Had you experienced anything like that in the previous six peaks? Um, had you had any close calls, any danger, anything like that that you were up against? I had um, I had a slip and a fall on Elbrus um, in Russia. Um, went to Elbrus in 2008. And, you know, we'd had all our gear. We'd had our winter training. Um, we weren't on a particularly difficult side of the mountain, but we were heading up. We had our guide with us. Um, and we expected to clip into fixed ropes up near the summit, and there was nothing. Uh, there was no ropes even between us. We thought we would be roped up as a group, no ropes. Um, so we had all the gear, all hat, no cattle, I think they would say in America. Um, we had all of the gear we had no use for it. And at one stage, I remember slipping and having to ice axe arrest myself as I was flying down the side of the mountain. And that soon focuses your attention, I can tell you. Um, <laughs> So, but you realize when you're on the ground shaking with your ice axe dug into the ground, you realize you have to get up and you have to go in one direction or the other here. There's no like, there's no helicopter rescue, right? You see, you have to get up and get on with this now. So suck up whatever you're feeling now and get on with it, you know? Um, But we learned a heck of a lot of lessons about winter gear and the management of all our gear on that one. But really before 2015, the biggest issue we had encountered was the previous year on Everest, on 2014. Mm. Um, we'd been over there about 19 days into the expedition. We'd done the adaptation climbs. I, I met John on one of the adaptation climbs in 2015. We'd done different climbs in 2014, and we were actually heading up to the top of one of the peaks, um, Lubbage, which is kind of across from Everest. And it's up at about 6,000 meters or there, thereabouts. Um, and we were just hauling our way up to the summit and across on Everest, there was a lot of Sherpa bringing supplies from base camp to, to camp one. And a huge Serac just broke free on the ice fall and came thundering down and killed 16 of them instantly. Mm. Uh, and we were completely unaware of it. We'd, all, we'd he- heard the rumbling on the way up to the summit. But when we got back down to the village, you know, a few hours later, uh, we found out that, you know, 16 people had been killed and they're still searching for them. And that had become, at that point, the biggest numerical disaster in the history of the mountain. It had surpassed the 1996 one. And so when we walked into base camp, we were walking into this disaster zone. um, And our Sherpa, who were with us, knew some of these people quite well. Um, And there was just this sense among all these people at base camp that this this awful tragedy has befallen us. What are we going to do now? And Sherpa were angry, um, sad, obviously. People had lost relatives. And it was we didn't experience it and that we weren't in, in base camp when it happened, but we walked into the immediate aftermath of it, which lasted for a week. Uh, and it, it went from mourning and sorrow 
to complete an outright anger among the Sherpa at the government, at the conditions on the mountain, at the risk they were taking without any reward as they saw it. Um, and they had a lot of legitimate beefs, I tell you. Uh, so the government had to come up to base camp and there was a whole lot of, it basically was an industrial dispute. Uh, it was an all out strike and government were at base camp. There was negotiations going on down in Kathmandu. And that went on for a week of very loud meetings, some of which we were in, some of which we had to watch from afar. And we got to experience, you know, what this whole thing was like from, you know, the perspective of the people who work on the mountain rather than us clients who came to climb it. And, and they wanted, you know, things like helicopters based in the Kumbu for the Kumbu. They wanted um, support for their families if something should happen. And there's the support they had received from the government was derisory. So, you know, they had a, they had a legitimate beef. We were 100% behind them. Um, and, and after about a week, then the expedition was called off. The whole season was called off. And everyone left with a bit of a bitter taste in their mouth because um, everyone felt like, the Sherpa hadn't been given the support they needed. Um, and that things had been really badly handled on almost every level from the diplomatic level to the human level. Uh, so that was our first experience of Everest. Um, you know, seeing tragedy and anger and wondering what sort of a place is this? You know, and, and that was the wrong impression to get because it's a magical place. Um, but whilst we were there, we were listening, you know, with front seat access to all of this awfulness and horror that these people were were having legitimate you know qualms about um and and happily some of the things were addressed in, in the season that followed but um we left that year thinking wow this is a complex place to be and it is a complex place to be it's it's an environment that's you know full of tourists it's an environment that's you know full of people who are making a living from only what you're doing um, it's full of people who take massive risks in order to try and improve their lot. And it's full of a whole lot of people like me who have hopes and dreams and are out there to try and realize them. And, you know, not all of those things are the same level of risk and not all of those things are as protected as each other when things go wrong. So, yeah, it was a, it was a very chastening experience. Um, we, but, but we didn't come away thinking we, would, we didn't want to go back. We certainly... The, the, the mountain itself kind of has a draw on you at that point. And we certainly felt that we wanted to go back. Our Sherpa really wanted us to come back and really made us feel welcome to come back. And they, they wanted to see us the following year. Um, and we had an attachment to our group at that point that we thought, well, let's, let's give this another go. Mm -hmm. What did that, sorry, go ahead, John. That's it, it, it just, it, it is incredibly, it, there's so many contradictions and complexities and dealing with the human aspects of that place. Uh, and, you know, like you said, Paul, the mountain or that whole area, just the incredible, you know, uh, you know, singularity of the beauty there is, is amazing and the challenge, the physical challenge. Uh, but Jen, Jen and I really came back with such an impression of the people as well, you know, the, the Sherpa people and, and the people that we ran into there, um, you know, uh, really moved us and, and are drawing us back uh, as well someday that, that we're gonna go back. So okay, we can have a long, long discussion about, uh, you know, all of the contradictions about, you know, the opportunity that, you know, people like us bring when we go there, uh, but also the tremendous risk that, that those people take uh, is uh, yeah, and the, the, 
I mean, one of the biggest contradictions is that everyone who goes there wants the place to be idyllic and stay exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And everyone who lives there wants to change and wants more opportunity. Um, and wants the people that are coming in, they want to grow that into an industry. Because the people in the Kumbu Valley are looking after, the, they, nobody else is looking after the Kumbu Valley except the people in the Kumbu Valley. And that's true for every valley in Nepal, most of whom, you know, most of the other valleys don't enjoy the same football as the Kumbu Valley does. So it's extremely lucky in that respect. But, you know, we want it to be this idyllic sort of Shangri-La and to stay exactly the same. And, you know, you talk to local folks and they're, they're like, no, we'd, we'd really like to upgrade our tea house into one that's four times the size. And we did really like to go Namche into a much bigger town. And we really like to do all these things. And, and that's, prog- that's progress. So we have to find a way to balance that, that need without destroying the, the ecosystem um, and give these folks who are incredible people an opportunity to do all of the things that we all enjoy doing as well. Yeah. It's, it's hard not to do just by virtue of us being there. You talk about the ecosystem. You know, we, we want it to be idyllic, but we're going up these valleys and you realize quickly the things that you take for granted, you know, just trash removal uh, and yeah. waste removal that everything has to be carried in and out and not everything is so there's you know you're walking up this incredibly beautiful valley and in the drainages there's trash and you know that's some of some of it it's just you know local people that but massive amount of it is all of us you know when i say yeah. us you know people from the outside coming in to vacation and have adventures there and and and, ex- and have that experience it's impossible to manually carry out all of the waste that uh, has to be brought in and eventually becomes garbage that, you know, to support us. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's sad, but it's a reality. Uh, and absolutely, I 100% agree that, you know, they deserve to have progress as well, 100%. Uh, it's just, it's a difficult thing. And it's like I said, so many contradictions. Paul, just change a little bit. I was, I'm curious, on every one of your uh, summits uh, or expeditions that you went on, did you have an outfitter? And I, th- I think you did. Uh, and if so, do you think looking back on that for every one of those mountains, uh, you know, Kosciuszko, uh, you know, um, Elbrus, do you need one necessarily if you are sufficiently experienced in, in the mountains and can get permits or whatever? Um, we had, I think, an outfitter for everything except Kosciuszko, which you don't really need an outfitter for. It's, okay. it's a tiny little hill. Um, but you can get away without one on Elbrus if you, if you know what you're doing. Um, if you've got all the right equipment and you know, you've got all of the right uh, sat phones and beacons and everything else, and you're plugged into exactly what you need for weather information, you can, you can do Elbrus without an outfitter for sure. Um, our choice to use outfitters was really down to our inexperience at the time when we hit some of these peaks. Uh, we wanted to use every peak we were on as a learning for the next one. Um, so we wanted all that. We wanted to just gobble up all of the experience we could get from, you know, mountain trip in Alaska and from IMG down in, in, in Antarctica. Some of them you can't do without having an outfitter. Um, you can't go to Antarctica without an outfitter. There's only a handful of outfitters. I think every outfitter that I called for Antarctica, it all arrived back to the same phone and the same desk at the ALE company headquarters. So, you know, there's one company that gives out the permits and there's maybe about five people allowed permits. I think Denali is, is similar in that there's a, there's a restricted number of companies that get permits for Denali. So it's harder now 
than ever to go and do Denali on your own. Uh, it's impossible to do anything in the Alps on your own nowadays. Um, it's really hard. Uh, if you take, if you move in the Alps, you have to have a guide with you, like to, to a level that I think is just overkill. Um, but yeah, and on Everest, there's loads of rules around Everest that mean that you have to, you know, you have to have Sherpa in your team. You can't do solo efforts anymore per se. So people that want to do them have to construct some intricate means of having people but not using them um, in order to get on the mountain and get up it. Did, you mentioned IMG. Did you use them for, for several? And I used them for um, Antarctica. That's the only one of the seven that I used them for. Uh, I used them again, but it was for Ecuador last year. Okay. Yeah, do you, uh, and getting back to uh, Everest, I think you kind of got screwed on, on every one in terms of, uh, did you, were you even able to go through the ice fall and get up to Camp One in, in 2014 or 2015? In 2014, we got nowhere. Uh, we got to base camp and everything had shut down by the time we got there. Uh, 2015, we got to go through most of the ice fall because we went through it the night before on our kind of recce run uh, to see what the conditions were like and to just get ourselves a little bit uh, in condition for going that night. So we were heading to Camp One at midnight on the day that the earthquake happened. Right, I think that was probably fr Friday for you guys. Yeah, we 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 got home on Thursday, and I think it was Saturday our time here when when we heard about it. I mean, uh, in terms of climbing regrets on Everest, I, I regret that we didn't get hired to experience the camps to bank that experience so that we'd be better prepared on that for next time. We have very little to bring away from the experience in real climbing terms. From the two years so it's 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 a very expensive outing to base camp in that respect but of course the context of what happened changes all of that but yeah yeah i wish we'd got got higher and understood a little bit more about the mountain and been able to take the advantage of that into the following year but not to be get a little more into the mountaineering aspects of, of the mountain mm. um i'm curious too did when you take take Everest uh, or you know anything that sticks out on the other ones uh, as well, how much of your equipment, your own personal equipment, did you pack and carry with you versus uh, you know what the outfitters provided? Equipment-wise, I, I everything except the ropes was mine. Yeah. Um, so you you've got about, I think the last time I calculated it, it was about twelve thousand pounds worth in UK pounds worth of uh, value in terms of what you bought to Everest with you. Uh, and that's all mine. So I would have made sure that all that gear had been, I, I bought it to Antarctica with me before that so that it had lots of use before I bought it to Everest. Very little of it was seeing its first use on Everest. Um, the boots were reasonably shiny because they'd only been to Antarctica, um, but there's not many places you can bring those boots anyway, except 8,000 meter peaks. Right. Um, but yeah, you, you have all of your own gear um, at that point, I think most Everest outfitters would expect not to be outfitting in a literal sense, the people that come to them uh, with, the, with the exception of ropes and, you know, guides and Sherpa. Okay. Yeah, when, when we went over, we, we had, you know, other than the 8,000 meter boots and, uh, you know, we had crampons and helmets and ice axes and all that all, harness, uh, but, our, our outfitter, I know it was Rob, uh, 
Rob oh, Castleweed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he uh, he said, you know, I'll, I'll get you helmets over there and ice axes and the crampons and boots. And if we were doing, if we were actually doing Everest, it certainly would have made sense to have our own stuff that we would have worn. I know Jen, she had hard plastic boots that were, you know, rented for her. Uh, and they weren't the most comfortable things. Uh, and I was able to have the, the full melee, uh, you know, 8,000 meter boots and they were fantastic. I had never put them on before, uh, but certainly, yeah, if you have a, a down suit, if you're going up to that level, which we didn't, have, we, we didn't need. Uh, so we were, you know, we had that stuff given to us over there. But, so we brought a very minimal amount of our own stuff. So I just wanted to- Most people that, I guess most Everest climbers are big, 8,000 meter climbers are very superstitious about stuff like that too. Um, you know, climbing in someone else's boots, all that sort of stuff. But you're so nervous that the smallest thing is gonna screw up your mission. And you've got so much time and energy and money behind this effort as well. That, you know, you don't want to leave things like, you know, boots wearing your feet down to the level where they get so badly damaged that you then can't go for the second or third rotation and so on. You don't want to leave any, even the smallest things like for, for my crampons. Um, I practiced on the ladders while I was training before I left Ireland. And I would find that on certain aluminium ladders that the crampons would stick and you'd have to really yank your foot up to get them up. So the angle grinder would come out and you get the crampon and grind away until you've got a perfect okay, that's going to lift perfectly. And it lifted perfectly when I got to the mountain as well. So, you you know, it's small little stuff like that. You become so at one with your gear that it's it's, a, it's almost like an OCD thing. It's, 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 it's probably unhealthy how familiar people get with their gear for mountaineering, but you, it would be surprising for someone to, to head out on some of these 8,000 meter peaks without bringing all of their own gear. This may be like a really basic question, but what, how do you handle nutrition out there? Like you have certain things that you like to eat and um, are you able to carry those with you or is everyone kind of eating the same thing? And I'm guessing once you get up to that, that uh, level of altitude, you know, your stomach kind of goes south and you don't really feel like eating as much, but how did you handle all that? A lot of the, a lot of the upper mountain stuff is, uh, is freeze dried. Um, okay. so you have to have a stomach for that. Um, you, can't be, you can't be too choosy in either. Um, but it's it, nutrition is, is is an incredibly important aspect of making sure you choose the right expedition outfitter as well. Mm. Um, you you will all eat together. It's an important part of the expedition that everyone eats together, and that's not just because it's more lean to do it that way than any other. It's a great way for the expedition people to keep an eye on everyone as well, and for everyone to keep an eye on everyone else. So if you were, if everyone was eating in their own tent and eating just what they bought themselves, someone could be deteriorating rapidly mm. and not eating, and you're not seeing the signs of altitude sickness that you should be picking up on. So having everyone gathered around a table allows you to look at what's the general mental state of everyone here. Is everyone eating? Who's eating really well? Who's eating not so well? And all of those things, you know, good guides, good expedition leaders are, are just, they're gobbling all that up mm. and they're working out and figuring out, okay, well, what do we need to watch for tomorrow? Um, so it, it's a, it has an incredibly important role apart from trying to keep people fed. But we all ate, we all ate reasonably well on Everest. The base camp uh, area has, we, we, every expedition team has their own cook. Um, so you've got a kitchen, you've got a cook there and you, you're, you're gonna be there for two months. So, you know, you're going to eat reasonably well. Mm -hmm. um, when you get up to the higher camps, it reduces back down to freeze-dried stuff. 
Um, so, you, but as you said, your, your appetite shrinks as well because your body's trying to work out, I'm getting very little oxygen in. How do I prioritize where I'm going to send this and what's going to operate at full whack and what's not? And so your, you know, your digestive system kind of slows down and your appetite disappears with it. So it, that's a happy coincidence. Your appetite disappears just at the point where you can't get a whole lot of food. But that's the point where you really have to have your own tried and tested uh, foods there. And you have to know what you like to eat when you don't want to eat. Mm. And that's a different thing from what you like to eat, full stop. So people, when they go out hiking in lower mountains, will, you know, they'll bring the snacks that they love. They'll bring the sandwich that they love. You know, that snack that you love at seven, seven and a half, eight thousand meters will have turned to rock. <laughs> so it'll be either inedible or you're not going to want to force it down you. So it's, it's a, another thing that it takes time to figure out is what foods do you like eating when you don't want to eat? Mm -hmm. yeah. And how accessible are they? Um, and how many of them can you bring all the time up the mountain with you? So, yeah, you, you, the higher you go, the more you become self-dependent. And then the freeze dried is added into that as well. Got it. Yeah. Um, let's get into 2015 um, in April. Um, if, if you wouldn't mind, just uh, kind of break it down and, and let us know uh, what happened and what was going through your head and, and how the day started and ended and just kind of break it down for us. 2015, um, it had been going really, really well, I should say. Um, I met John that year. We were at Island Peak, I think, when we met you guys. I yeah, think we were heading on. down, you were heading up, or was it the I other think, way around? I think we, we were trekking to the base camp from Chukung, the lodge there, ah. uh, and I think we crossed each other. We, we had just been up to Island Peak, and we'd, we decided to swap Island Peak into our 2015 uh, itinerary. It wasn't in our 2014 one. And the reason we done that was we wanted to spend time up, up on the peak. So we actually camped up at 6,000 meters just above the headwall on Island Peak. And we stayed there for a night. Then we went from there to the summit, which is not a huge distance, and then back and slept again. So we had two full nights of 6,000 meters on Island Peak. And then I met you on the way back down. And the purpose of that was primarily to try and reduce the amount of times we just go across the ice ball. So the, the, the accent the previous year had been in the ice fall. We were keen not to spend the whole lot of time in the ice fall. And so if you could get your adaptation for camp one somewhere else, then get as much of it as you can and you can reduce some of those crossings. So I'd met you on the way down and then we headed off from there. We climbed another peak on the way to base camp and then we got into base camp around the 20th of April. So we're about 20 days into this thing at this point. We've mostly been hiking and climbing mid-level peaks. Um, and then we had a few days of rest. We had our puja ceremony, the religious ceremony at base camp. Um, people had been up the ice fall at that point to try it out. The condition of the ice fall was superb, according to all reports. Um, and everything was going really, really good. And we felt really, really good. Our, our base camp area was beautiful. Our team was really gelling. Um, and then on the 25th of April, we decided to just head up some of the ice fall. So we went from base camp about three quarters of the way through the ice fall towards camp one. And the idea was just get up there, get into the, you know, get into the teeth of the ice fall and feel what this thing feels like. Get your bearings, work out what you're dealing with here. And it's just like this incredible playground of just massive towers of ice all everywhere around you. And you're just weaving in and out, crossing aluminium ladders every so often. Um, and it, it is an extraordinary experience. You do a lot of it in the dark because you start 
you know, early in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got up there, we'd gone through the ice wall, it was in superb condition. We got back to base camp and we were resting. And at about 11 o'clock that morning, we were just sat around in our mess tent, which we eat in and, you know, we're just hanging out. I think one guy was typing on his computer, somebody else was basically watching a movie or something. Um, and then everything started moving. Uh, and we thought nothing of it. We thought, well, here we go again. Another rumble, another avalanche. You hear them all the time. Mm. And you become so used to it. Um, and then everything started to move laterally. And I thought, that's not a feeling I've had before. And I'd never never been in an earthquake before. Um, so we ran outside and the entire, uh, the, uh, the entire area of base camp, which is sat on that Kumbu glacier, was just moving. Everything was moving. And when everything is moving, you don't have, you can't relate to, there's nothing staying still. So you've got no point of reference. It's just, everything is on the move. And you think this is madness. Um, are, are we moving in a direction? Are we all just moving? It just didn't make any sense to me. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I, it took a few seconds to realize this is an earthquake because we didn't know what was happening. The, the visibility was awful that day. Uh, it was very cloudy. And we were at the very bottom of the ice fall. Um, so base camp stretches out for about a kilometer and a half. And we were on the inside of base camp, really towards the ice fall side. And we looked up into the ice fall for the bit that we could see, because we couldn't see all that much of it. And we thought the ice fall was collapsing. And, we, and if it collapsed, it was going to collapse down on top of us. So we're kind of fixated on that. And while we were fixated on that, all of the threat was coming from behind us. There, there's two peaks behind us. One is called Kamore, and the other was called Lintran. And there's a kind of a ridge that runs between them. And the earthquake had caused all of the snow and ice to dislodge off that ridge. And it fell about a thousand meters onto a plateau, which is about the same height as base camp and it caused a shockwave. And so we were seeing an avalanche that was actually a shockwave caused by all of that ice and snow collapsing off those mountains. And it was coming at lightning speed. Never saw anything like it. We didn't have time to think about it. We just looked behind us. There was a wall of white coming. And because of the visibility, you know, you, you could just about, you could make out the wall of white, but you couldn't see how high it was or how wide it was. It just looked like it was everywhere. Uh, and there was nothing for it, but to just jump inside and jump under a table, which was fairly useless because, you know, it wasn't going to offer us much, much protection, but, you know, human nature, you just go for something at that point rather than nothing. Right. So we ran inside and, and got under the table and you have that few seconds waiting for it to hit and it was, um, it was a very, very frightening experience because you had the unknown of an earthquake, which had never really affected Everest in the history of Everest being climbed. The last big earthquake in Nepal had been 1934, I think. And so even though this area that really is primed for earthquakes, it's not a surprise there's an earthquake in Nepal. It was a surprise that there was an earthquake in Nepal. Sure. Uh, you know, people had been saying there was going to be earthquakes for years before that, but when you're planning your expedition, you know, you look at the whole history of the mountain or as much of it as you're willing to gobble up. And then you look at all the planning you can do and the word earthquake never enters that lexicon at all, at all. And that might be a failure of planning, but none of us, even including the Sherpa had thought about that at all. And you could see it in the faces of the Sherpa. They'd never experienced anything quite like that before. And they were incredibly frightened. So we all knew we were in the same boat. We all knew knew this was something new. Um, but it took a while for us to realize just how disastrous that had been because it kind of hit us, hit our camp. We got the tail end of it. So the energy had pretty much gone out of it. And your first assumption then is, well, if the energy has gone out of it when it reached us, 
it probably was gone out of it when they reached everyone else. So we're probably fine. Mm -hmm. That was my first reaction. Mm -hmm. And then as we got out and started to, to walk towards the middle of camp, that's when you become aware that, no, this is actually a disaster. And, and it became very apparent very quickly that this was very damaging. Was there a moment in your head where you thought that this is it? It's all over. This is how it's going to end. Um, I, I saw the, it, I saw a video. I'm not sure if you were the one filming it, but I saw people in their tent. They were praying. Um, yeah, I saw some real panic and, and some, and then at kind of the aftermath, I saw like just pure adrenaline in your eyes as you were kind of explaining uh, what had happened. Well, I, I'd, uh, as the ground started to move, I jumped up in the tent and my camera was there and I grabbed the camera and it has a, a massive big record button on it, which is kind of friendly for when you're wearing big gloves. So I just hit the record button and I carried it in my hand outside. And that's the, that's the footage that you're seeing. Okay. Um, we were in a pure state of panic. There's, there's no point in saying otherwise. We were completely petrified. And, and I remember when we were under the table, um, there was some Norwegians in our, in our team as well. And one of them was beside me. That's the guy who was praying. Um, and I remember not feeling that I was going to die or anything like that, but I remember trying to figure out how I should prepare myself for being propelled into the icefall. Mm. Um, as if you could do that, as if you could prepare yourself for that. But I remember thinking, right, we're probably going to get launched here. So get, your, get yourself ready for this is not going to be nice. Um, this is not going to be nice. And, and as well as that, you're kind of the previous year when the when the accident happened on the icefall, the big piece of ice that released down on top of the Sherpa, it encased some of them. So you know this was very powerful disaster in terms of how it impacted physically the people that it hit, and three of those guys have never been found. And I remember that going around in my mind a little bit, thinking, if this, what's in this thing that's coming at us, and if there's big chunks of ice and rock and everything else in this what's going to happen. Um, but mostly I was trying to kind of brace myself for what I thought would happen, which is that we'd just get thrown. I said, just that we would get thrown entirely up into the icefall and then we'd have to deal with the consequences of that. It doesn't seem like climbing in your tent would be optimal for something like that. Like, oh, no. And, and later on in the video, I think you said that, you know, it, while you guys are sleeping at night, if you do hear anything like an avalanche or, or, or earthquake or anything like that, climb in your, or climb out of your tent rather. Yeah. Um, so I'm just curious, like, why did you guys panic and climb in the tent and under the tables? Or was it just, we haven't prepared for this? We. we <laughs> it was a combination of things. It was um, at the point where we saw it coming at us, it was almost on top of us. We had, we had a matter of seconds between when we saw it and when it hit. Mm. And we had no idea how powerful it was. So we had to assume it was very powerful. Um, we didn't have time available to us to work out where to, where to run alternatively. We had to work out, well, what do you do now? Get under a structure or get behind the structure. Mm -hmm. And the table was a structure. So we thought, well, that might work. Mm. You know, in retrospect, getting into the tent is the worst thing you can do because mm. now you're buried in a tent mm -hmm. in snow. <laughs> so now you've got two problems rather than one. Right. Uh, but uh, so it was a mixture of never having, never having been in that experience, even though you've read about it and even though you know what the rules are. When the second hits where you've got to make that decision that in three seconds time, that thing is going to impact all of us. What do we do? Um, you know, we just went for the first thing that we could see, which was get under the table. Mm. Now, 
for the next night, we, we, we sat down as a team after the end of that day and we tried to work out what to do with that night because we all kind of, all of our confidence in base camp had been completely destroyed at that point. So when we look around us, every, you know, overhanging piece of ice or snow on any mountain in our vicinity could possibly get to us. There was, there's no rules anymore. If it's up there a long way away, it can be here. Mm -hmm. So what do we do? Um, and we basically, it was a case of, right, well, sleep with your helmet on, uh, go outside now and figure out if you hear rumbling, try and get outside, figure out where you might think it's coming from and choose your rock to get behind. Now you might choose the wrong side and that's the end of that. Um, but, you know, choose your rock and do it now and consciously have that path in your mind so that if it starts rumbling in the night, you can go. Um, so we were a bit better prepared for that the second time. But um, the strange thing about first time versus second time is the second time when you know something is coming like an aftershock can be more frightening than the first time when you didn't know what it was at all. The first time you're, you're involved in an in a episode of blind panic mm. where nobody really knows what's going on, including the people who are supposed to know most of all what's going on. Mm -hmm. Second time, everyone knows what's going to happen. Everyone can prepare themselves, but the fear factor increases even more the second time because you've got to prepare yourself for something you know is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And that's ironically or strangely more petrifying than not knowing at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, Paul. You, you, I'm sure your, your engineer's mind has thought about the physics of this so many times and, and, and the emotional part of it is just a whole huge uh, aspect of it as well. But from the, it, it's interesting that in your mind, in, in those seconds, you were thinking about getting launched, right? And probably the reality was your biggest danger was getting hit with projectiles from like a bomb blast. Um, or, and you know, you didn't know what, another another possibility was getting buried, right? If it was really yeah. the, the full avalanche, the mass of the avalanche coming to hit you. Um, but you, yeah, you were thinking getting launched. And I, when I look at your face in those videos, which is just so, such a visceral, uh, fear and it just said, you know, that that's what you're experiencing in that moment. And it's so, so real and in your face, you know, I, I tried to think about what would be going through my mind and what I would be feeling in that moment. Yeah. And I, I, I guess I would obviously, is this, is this the end or what do I grab? Uh, and if I'm going to get buried, uh, that's the ultimate nightmare. Um, and there were people that were, um, there was a, a tent, uh, a UK company had their camp kind of towards the middle of base camp and they were right in the impact zone when it came, when, when, the, when all of the force of it came into base camp. And the natural reaction of everyone there was to get out of their tents and stand up and try and figure out what was going on. And it scooped them up. If they had stayed anywhere else and kept low, they would have been better than going outside and standing up. Um, you know, but it's a natural human reaction. They went outside to try and figure out where is the rumbling come from and how can I brace myself or plan for this? And by standing up, they, they were just scooped up and thrown um, and didn't survive. So it's, it was a lot of luck that we ended up in the position that we were in. It was a bit of luck, I suppose. It didn't matter whether we were in the tent or not because the energy had gone out of it. It was a bit of luck as to whether you stayed low or got high accidentally. There was a whole lot of things that it might not have mattered how much avalanche protection you had done because this wasn't the traditional avalanche. Um, this was a very different thing. And it was, by the time it got into base camp, it picked up base camp and it had, 
you know, kitchen equipment, it had tent equipment, it had pieces of people's uh, own climbing equipment. It was full of projectiles. This thing was just a bomb going off, just launching projectiles in every direction. But, you know, when you're staring through the mist at what that white plume is coming out, you have absolutely no context for it, except that you have about three to four seconds and it's going to hit you. Now, you might have a little bit more than that, but at the point where you make your decision, you don't know that. So it's curious how, you know, some people do make different decisions at that point. We got under the table. The French guy in our team stood holding the pole that was holding our tent up because he reckoned the only chance we were going to have is to keep the tent up. <laughs> that was a bloody clever idea. French are obviously cleverer than we are. So it's, it's like, that, okay, that's interesting. That was his decision. So you look around the tent and everyone was having a different reaction to some degree. I look around it in retrospect and see that. I don't look around at the time. I look around at the time going, oh crap, we're going to get launched. What do I do? What do I do? That's what you think. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's incredible. It's heavy. Yeah. Um, describe the aftermath. Um, I'm sure it was just a nightmare, but how did this change the whole expedition and uh, uh, what was involved there? So when we got out of the tent, um, everything was covered in snow and we didn't think it was all that bad. Um, and one of the Benengas brothers, both the, the, they run an expedition company. He came running into our camp and he was just like covered in deep snow. Uh, and he was trying to figure out, was there any one of our team up the mountain? And his brother was up the mountain, mm. camp one. Um, so we figured out, okay, well, this has obviously been worse for some people than others. And then we, we heard the radios crackle and we heard that there was some help needed at the middle of camp. And so we were told, okay, if you can get your gear on, we need help. So we geared up and we went to the middle of camp and you're kind of walking slowly out of your own little enclosure at base camp. So everyone's got their own enclosure. You walk up out of your enclosure and you kind of get to see a little bit more of camp. And because of the visibility, you know, it takes you a while as you're walking to realize that actually there's no camps anymore. They're all gone. And then you start to see all the gear scattered around you and everything from, you know, torn up tents to sleeping bags, to pieces of equipment, to personal stuff. Um, and it just, it looks like, it looks like a, a, an airplane crash. And the more you keep walking towards base camp, the worse it gets. And you realize that there's no camps at all towards the middle of camp, except miraculously the medical tent has survived. Uh, and that's where you start to see that the white snow gives way to more of a reddish snow. Mm. And you realize that the medics are, you know, they're, they're up to their neck in, in work at this point. So you throw yourself at their mercy and ask them, you know, what do they need and what, what, what should you do? Because you don't know what to do. You know, um, everyone who's, who, who was a doctor before they went to the mountain to climb becomes a doctor again. And everyone who was, you know, whatever your role was before, you kind of each one use that role to figure out, so, you know, I'm an engineer. What do you want me to do? You know, um, well, we need people to carry people. OK, I can carry people. So, you know, you, you ended up, a lot of us ended up carrying people the whole way across base camp. Um, and you watched base camp get transformed into this kind of big um, medical evacuation zone where we were carrying people the whole way across this kilometer or so distance to get to the other side where the big tents were for IMG, HIMEX. So the big expedition teams, they were on the whole other side of base camp and they were close to the, where the helipad would be. I say helipad, the heli area if a helicopter could get in, which they couldn't because the weather was too bad. So the job of the day was get as many people across base camp that needed help to those tents. 
And very quickly, there was a tent for the walking wounded. There was a tent for major uh, impact injuries. Um, and they'd kind of sectioned off people in accordance with where medics would be and what help might be needed. Uh, and very quickly, you know, the expedition leaders of a handful of expeditions had turned the whole thing into this very well organized routine where we would be carrying people across. They would have radios stood on rocks saying, you know, we've got someone coming in with a leg injury. Okay, you're going to go up to the right. You're going to go to those tents there with that person. So that's what our day ended up being. And you were acutely aware a few times on the way back that you're walking through the blast zone and you don't know. The thing that struck us was most was you don't know whether you're at the start of this thing or at the end of this thing. You know, is this the prelude to a major earthquake? Is this the earthquake? You have no context on any of those things, but you have a job to do and you kind of just bury yourself in the job that you've been given. Um, otherwise, I think you'd cripple yourself with fear and you wouldn't be able to walk across base camp at all. So we ended up carrying people for the whole day. And then as you do that, every time you got to the other side, you became aware of how bad this had been. So you go across the first time you've heard, okay, there's a couple of people who've been killed. And then you come back this next time and it's six people. And you come back the next time and it's, we're now in double figures. Mm. You come back the next time you're you know, up to 15, 16. And you realize, oh boy, this is, this is major. And there's, there's maybe about 60 people in, in a pretty bad way on top of this. So it becomes very clear that this is, this is a very serious situation. I remember at one point we got to the other side where IMG camp was and we'd been carrying someone over there. And I mean, it sounds pathetic to say, but you know, hauling somebody, you know, even though there's a few of you with this makeshift stretcher uh, across a kilometer at base camp's altitude takes it out of you. Oh, yeah. So you arrive on the other side, pathetically out of breath and just knackered. Um, and so you kind of have to take a little bit of respite and get some water into you and get ready to go again. And um, one of the main, uh, one of the big guides at IMG came up to myself and the guy that was with me. And he asked us if we would help move these folks from where they were up to the helipad. And of course we said, no problem. And the folks that he was talking about had all died. Um, and he needed to move the, all of those people out you know, tarps over them and get them up to the up to the helipad. Um, I, I think the guy that was with me, his face turned white. I'm not so sure that my face was any less white than his. Um, and the guy who who had asked us realized this not, might not be the right question to ask these guys right now. So he directed us to do something else instead. Um, and I don't know whether I'm really thankful for, to him for that or whether I, I wish we just got stuck in and done what needed to be done there, but you were faced with a lot of very difficult and impossible choices about the things that you had to do. Um, and I applaud all of those who'd done the most difficult things that day. We'd done the little bit that we could, which was to carry people across base camp for the whole day. And then as night fell, everyone had been transported that needed to be transported. I think there was some folks hadn't been found yet. Maybe were found the next day. And then it was a case of getting back to our camp and preparing our team and figuring out what are we going to do now? Because um, some of the people in our in our team had got involved in the rescue and some hadn't. And there's a reason for that. Some people are aware of what they should expose themselves to for their own mental well-being. And some people are, you know, are, are well willing and capable of walking straight into the middle of this thing. So you find out a lot about yourself and a lot about other people as well. And you find out that 
when some people don't run into the center of a problem, it doesn't mean that they're not brave. It means that they're protecting themselves from things that might take them down, you know? So again, it's a very complex scenario. Um, so you lose any judgmentalism you might have about that element of it very quickly. And then it was a case of, right, okay, we've got to get, get ourselves ready for tonight. There's going to be aftershocks. There may be another one. Get yourself ready, choose your rock, yada, yada, yada. Um, and so, yeah, that's what we done and, and slept until early next morning. I went across to the far side where ING war again, and the helicopters were just arriving as I arrived over. Um, and so they were, they were starting to take the first injured people because the, the, the first priority was we have 60 or so injured people here. Let's get the injured people down to Kathmandu. When the injured have been dealt with, then we can think about what we're gonna do with all the people that have died. Um, which seems, you know, again, you have to you have to take a moment to reflect on the fact that that's true, mm -hmm. even though it's not what you might first think about. Um, and then there was a there was a whole lot of people. There was 170 people up the mountain between Camp One and Camp Two who were completely stranded. So that the the ice fall between base camp and, and Camp One had been completely broken up. The route that had been set there with the ladders was gone. Um, they had no way down. And a couple of very brave people had tried to work out if there was a route down and there was no route down. Mm. So between camp one, which is an avalanche, you know, hot zone and camp two, which, you know, you've got to cross a lot of crevasses to get to. Um, there were all these frightened people who, who were completely unaware of what had happened down below and were becoming aware of it. So from our perspective at base camp, we, our first thought was they are screwed. If there's been a, a earthquake this big down here, the damage up there would be colossal. There must be a lot of problems up there. Up there, they were completely unaware that all the problems had happened down with us. So they're becoming aware now that, okay, base campus has taken a big hit. So get yourself ready. So the helicopters that had taken all the people down to Kathmandu turned around and headed back up the mountain. And it was an incredible thing to see. They would, they would fly almost into the face of one of the mountains beside the, the, the icefall. And just when it looked like they were gonna hit it, they would swing around and head up the icefall through the clouds up to 7,000 meters. And it was incredible to watch. And they fished every single person out of those camps and safely wow. back into base camp. It's an insane thing. The pilots deserve all the praise you could possibly imagine to give them. Um, and so, you know, some of those people tell stories about getting back to base camp and there's nothing. It's all their entire tent, everything that once was their encampment is gone. If they had been there rather than where they were, and it was just a bit of fortune that somebody decided to go that day. You know, we decided to go at midnight. They had decided to go at midnight the previous day. There's no real, you know, logic as to why anyone would pick one over the other. It's just that's the way it happened. Had they been at base camp, they wouldn't be there anymore. So, you know, you, you're, you're still, your adrenaline is still going and you're trying to kind of figure out what to do with yourself next because everyone that needed to be got out of base camp was out of base camp now in terms of the injured. Um, we sat around as a team and we, we just didn't feel safe at base camp, which is a really odd thing to ever think. For anyone that's been to base camp, it's a very odd feeling to think that you wouldn't regard that place as safe. So we decided we would hike out and down to a village called Fariche, where there's a medical center, and we would stay there until we could get a better lay of the land. And the reason why we decided to stay there rather than just keep going and get out was we had heard stories at this point, you know, you're hearing pockets of information coming about how bad this has been elsewhere. 
Uh, you're living in this little microcosm of base camp where all of this awfulness has happened, but you start to become aware that like there's 9,000, well, we weren't aware it was 9,000 then, but there's a lot of people in other parts of the country that have been very badly affected. We'd heard that the airport at Lukla, there was running battles to get on, on planes to get back down to Kathmandu. We'd heard that the airport in Kathmandu was closed because the runway had split in two. We'd heard that Kathmandu was just a disaster zone. So, you know, you have no context for all of this. You don't know what's true or not. And, you know, when you look at it all, it seems safer to get down the valley and stay in the valley until you could figure out fact from fiction. Mm -hmm. So that's what we did. We trekked out of base camp. Um, it took us a day to get down to Fariche. We stayed there for maybe four or five days. And we watched everyone on the mountain come down past us, continue down to Lukla and get off the mountain. And eventually when we trekked down through Lukla or through Namche and onto Lukla, we were the only people there. And I remember being on that trail on my own, you know, which is a very spooky thing considering how that is such a crowded trekking trail at the best of times. Um, and then we eventually got back to Kathmandu in early May. Um, so it was a few days, it was a few days after all the drama had kind of died down a little bit. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a, a very traumatic time in a lot of ways, but you didn't have time to reflect on the trauma while you were in it because you had a job to do. And that's a good thing, I think. Mm. Yeah. Well, how many nights did, did you stay at base camp before you started the trek out? Was it two nights? Two nights, yeah. Two nights, yeah. Yeah, and then we were out. Um, I, I didn't want to, I don't think any of us wanted to stay any longer than that, to be honest. Um, You'd, we'd lost our appetite for being there, obviously, because of what had happened. But really, we just didn't feel we didn't feel safe, mm. um, and we wanted to get down the mountain and feel a little bit safer. Our Sherpa needed to get down and out because all of their home villages had been affected, obviously, and so they were having a very different experience to us. We're afraid, like everyone's afraid. Uh, it's been a big event. We've had some trauma from it, um, and we're keen to safely get ourselves home. They're keen to see whether they still have a home. Um, and it, it, it takes you, you're, you're so engrossed in your own experience there that it takes you a little while to figure out that actually we need to get these guys home. That's priority number one, not getting me home. You know, Qatar Airways will eventually get me home. These guys, we need to get them off this mountain as quick as possible. Um, so yeah, it, 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 once we got back down to Kathmandu, everyone parted ways, I think pretty quickly. I stayed on for a few weeks. Um, and I'd done some relief work with an Irish aid agency um, in Kathmandu. And we went around the Kathmandu Valley uh, doing various bits of relief work and setting up a clinic, you know, with the Nepal um, Cancer Hospital in one of the hills over Kathmandu. And I got to see what, it, what had happened to all the hills around the Kathmandu Valley. And it was amazing. It was insane what had happened. The damage was intense. Um, these places have been reduced to rubble. And we were, in some cases, the first people to walk into some of those villages. And this was maybe 10 days later or 12, 13 days later. Um, nobody had come to give them any help. Now, we'd arrived with some food and some tarps and some different things, and it was completely insufficient for what they needed. Mm -hmm. So they got very angry about the fact that, you know, this isn't going to cut it. And their anger wasn't directed at us, but it was, you know, we had some moments where it was a case of, I think we need to cut and run out of here and figure out a better strategy because this is not a good strategy here. Mm. Um, so we helped where we could. And then when it became apparent that actually it's probably more help to go home and raise funds than it is to be in people's way here, 
that's when it was the decision was made to, to go home. And there was an earthquake in Kathmandu the, in Nepal on the 15th of May, which was a separate earthquake from the Gurkha earthquake that had caused the, the disaster on Everest. And uh, I was in Tamil in Kathmandu when that happened. And I, I think it's more frightening being in an urban setting when there's an earthquake than it is being in a rural one. Because I was, that was terrifying. Um, but uh, yeah, I, 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 you could see from, the locals were terrified because a lot of them were just sleeping in the parks. They weren't sleeping in their own houses, even if their house was fine. We went into one of the ma major parks in, in Kathmandu and it's a big military parade park. And it was just covered in these really, really nice tents that had been donated by the Chinese government. And then down at the bottom of the encampment, there was one really crappy looking makeshift tent. I looked into it and there was three guys in it and they were studying. And I asked them what they were studying. And they said they're learning Korean because if they can get to Korea and get a job, they can get money, send it back and rebuild their house. Wow. And they were saying those words with a smile on their face, you know, days after an earthquake, getting on with it. The, the, the practicality of the people was extraordinary. If you were, if you were prone to feeling sorry for yourself, you know, that wasn't the place to be. Mm. Um, so I found that whole experience of really, you know, intimately learning what they've gone through and watching them trying to recover from it, very therapeutic. And I think I'm glad that I spent that time there rather than came home and stared at the wall and maybe had a little bit of woe as me about the fact that I'd gone twice and not been able to climb it. So I wasn't, I didn't have any um, anger or regret in me when I got on the plane to come home. I was just astonished at the resilience of these people that were just ready to go again. Let's, let's rebuild. How do we rebuild? Learn. What language do you want me to learn? I'll learn it. Let's go. Amazing. We were, we were struck by that when I was talking about the people before that happened. It's just going up the, the Kumbu and these people are so generous. I mean, it, it, it give you anything and they don't have a lot. And when I say a lot, I mean, you know, the physical things that, you know, we all, we all have, and they they just seem, they're just, you know, grateful and happy and giving uh, people. And we were just so touched by that. And it, what you're talking about the aftermath there, I mean, so many of the Sherpa pe people that were supporting, you know, all of these treks and all these expeditions, many of them, they didn't know if their homes going down the valley, right? Many of them lived in the valley like Farishé or, uh, you know, these, these other villages uh, coming up the valley. Uh, and they didn't know if their family was harmed or if their home was still there. Uh, and down in Kathmandu, we, we've, we've kept in touch with uh, our uh, head Sherpa, uh, his family. And tragically, he, later that year, he, he lost his life on, on Amadan Blam. And we keep in touch with his, his wife and, and his kids. But right after the... Uh, the, uh, the earthquake there in the months after with these aftershocks, it was a tremendously stressful place. And he, they were living uh, in tents, uh, not because their apartment was destroyed, but because there was uncertainty about whether it would collapse in, in, a, in a subsequent aftershock or earthquake. And they were living in, in tents in the yard of the Hyatt there for quite some time. And it was tremendously stressful. Uh, so just what these people went through in then and the after and the months afterwards it was just you know very emotional and, and uh draining and, and stressful on them and yet you know <laughs> like you said like you observed they, they remain positive and 
happy for what they do have. It's 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 incredible. It's amazing too how woefully unprepared every element of state was in Nepal for any possibility of an earthquake. Um, after I had done the, some of the work with the Irish Aid Group, um, I done some work with Redpoint, the 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 folks who do the the Ripcord Insurance, Redpoint, they do evacuations, American-based, and they had an American medic and they had two ex-military guys who were there as well to try and do some work for them. Um, and, you know, they were trying to get materials up into the Kumbu Valley and up to Gurkha and up to different places. Uh, and they were just meeting just the most incredible incompetence in trying to organize anything. So, you know, the, the I remember walking from the, the front door of Kathmandu Airport, the whole way through the airport and out onto the tarmac, completely without anyone saying a word to me. And as I walked onto the tarmac, one of the Ospreys, the US military Ospreys, had just landed in front of me. Um, they didn't know what to do with the Ospreys. They didn't know what to do with the British Army Chinooks. They didn't know what to do with anything when the time came to try and deal with any of this. So I think, you know, th th there was a woeful lack of preparedness for it. That meant that when it happened, people hadn't mentally mentally prepared because the country hadn't physically prepared, um, and it was such an outrageous shock to everyone that such a thing could happen. Because the last time it happened, it happened to their very old grandparents, perhaps. Uh, it, it certainly wasn't in living memory for most of them. Mm. So yeah, it, 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 you could certainly see the shock and, and fear was when they took outside to, to live in their tents rather than their houses. I found that extraordinary, but obviously it made sense. Um, there was a few shakes in the days after when I came back down to Kathmandu. And I remember I, I would sleep with my boots on. You'd be afraid to go for, you know, a wash. You'd be afraid to go to the toilet in case that happened while you were on the toilet. Mm -hmm. You know, so you were constantly in this state of being ready for off, you know, and I could, I didn't have to bear that for very long. I could go home. You know, the folks who lived there had to bear that for quite a long time afterwards. And it took a long time to repair and it took a long time to get back up and running. But, you know, they're, they're woefully resilient and positive people. And um, I think, you know, it stands for them and no country deserves to recover faster, but I think they've got some ways to go. Wow. This may be a hard question. Um, is, is there any sense of like, PTSD or, or survivor's guilt or, or any feelings like that looking back? I don't know is the honest answer to that question. I carried some physical PTSD probably with me in that when I got back to London, if I went up to the tube station to get the underground and I'd walk into the station, the tube train would be coming flying into the station, the whole station would shake slightly. And my body would be telling me to run, run very, very fast. Wow. And my legs held on to that muscle memory of it for a very, very long time. Um, and still do in certain situations where I find myself where I, I can feel the ground going a little bit. And I have to tell myself, you're fine. It's nothing. You know, um, I didn't suffer from, you know, any sleep problems. Um, I didn't suffer any acute PTSD. Um, and I, I think that some of that is because I was able to wrestle a lot of it out of my system in the few weeks afterwards by staying there and doing the extra work and talking to the people and hearing them, you know. Also, I, I remember one episode we were coming back from doing the, um, we'd done a medical camp at one stage where I went along with the doctors and my job was just muscle. I was there to carry things and set up things. And we'd set up a camp and we're coming back in the bus that day 
It's a very long drive back to Kathmandu. And they just had, they had a sing-song of beers in the bus. I remember thinking, it's very hard to be singing and drinking beers in the situation that you find yourself in. And then, I, so I asked them, I said, um, it's not a bit odd. And they said, well, we have to wake up with this tomorrow and the next day. So, you know, this is, this is our life. So we have, to, we have to figure out how to deal with tomorrow and the next day and the next day. So we have to keep our spirits up. Um, and they were right, of course. So I think I found all of the way in which they kept their spirits up quite therapeutic in not being able to, you know, in being able to shed a little bit of the PTSD. Um, whether it affects me when I go back into extreme altitude, I don't know. Um, but I think I've been luckier than a lot. I, I saw people come off the mountain with extreme levels of trauma. Mm -hmm. um, that would, it'll take a long time. It would have taken a long time afterwards for them to process it and deal with it for sure. Um, I don't know whether or not all of the years that I'd spent preparing for it allowed me to better manage myself in that situation than I would have done otherwise. I think if I'd not taken the seven years or eight years that it took to get there, and if I decided to school it all up in year one and go, I think I might have found it all so much more alien mm -hmm. than I did, maybe. Wow. It's an incredible story, man. Um, do you keep in touch with uh, any of the Sherpas or, or any of your friends from, from uh, back in the day? Well, from I that do. incident? Yeah. Yeah, we, the, the expedition owner um, and the, the couple of the Sherpa, yeah, we stay in touch on Facebook. Um, you know, they're in regular touch to see if I want to come back. <laughs> um, and yeah, we do, we do to a degree. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's certainly something that you don't want it to be everything you're about after it happens either. Um, so, you know, the Nepalese don't want their story to be about an earthquake. None of us want our story to be about one thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm conscious that I need to, you know, get on to my next adventures and, you know, have another mountain. And there's been some mountains since, but nothing as big. Um, but I'm, I'm keen to get past it as much as I'm keen to, climate if that makes any sense mm -hmm. um and it, it, that makes it sound like a kind of a means to an end but i think i'm climbing it because my ambition was to do the seven um i'll be happy when i'm the far side of it um but i have to work out how to extract the maximum amount of joy from doing it otherwise you won't succeed in it and if that extraction of joy comes from climbing a different mountain on the north side and having a different approach to it and different things and so be it. Um, but hopefully that's, that's what I'll be able to do. Wow. Um, what do your adventures look like nowadays? Um, like what, what, what do you get up to? It's been, it's been five, six years removed. Um, I'm sure there's been some healing to do in, in that time, but like, yeah, what do you get up to nowadays? I left it a couple of years. I didn't really do a whole lot. Um, and then I went out to Slovenia and I climbed their highest peak out there, Triglav. Oh. If you ever get a chance, it's, it, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of very interesting climbing on it. Um, there's a lot of Via Ferrata on it. Uh, it's a beautiful place. And it's, there's not that many people out there climbing it. Okay. Uh, and I definitely will put that on your list. Um, and last year, at the beginning of last year, just while... While the word coronavirus was only starting to appear, 
um, I went down to Ecuador to climb the volcanoes with, ah. with a bunch of Americans in an IMG team. And that, that, that team was had a few folks that I'd climbed with on Vincent in Antarctica and on Everest as well. So we ki- kind of try and, you, you don't get to climb with everyone again because the chances of that is a bit remote, but you do pick people out of different teams and you do reunify with them every so often to climb peaks. So we went down to, to Ecuador and gave the three, um, the three volcanoes a go. We only got to climb one. Uh, the weather crapped out on the second one, so we couldn't even attempt it. And then on the third one, I just didn't have enough fuel in the fire. So I realized, okay, this is how far you are towards your goal. That's good. Let's, let's not make that mistake again. Let's make sure you've got everything in the fire the next time you go for these things. So you, you're kind of, for me, it's snakes and ladders. I'm back down the ladder a little bit and trying to figure out, okay, what preparation is needed at this age to do it versus when I've done it before. How do I get the passion back to the levels I had it before? So I'm just trying to get that mixture right. Um, I think that's probably the last big climb I've done. We went into lockdown a year ago. And I think since that, I've, I've not been out of the country since that. I've not even been able to get home to Ireland to see my, my mom. Mm. So I haven't been home since December 2019. Uh, you can't go at the moment. So mm-hmm. the climbing has been out to Wales hiking up Snowdon and hiking up the Brecon Beacons, which are just beautiful. I mean, they're babies in comparison with anything in Colorado, but they're so good for the soul, I can't tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then up to the Lake District and, and climb the highest peak in England, the Scaffold Pike up there and Helvellyn. So it's been really very leisurely stuff because for the last year, I've not been able to get out. But I have some things on my radar. And as soon as I get out, I'd like to get back to the Alps. Um, I'd like to get the Matterhorn a go. I'd like to get out to India and give Nun Peak a go. Mm. A friend of mine told me about Nun Peak and he said it's the most beautiful mountain he ever climbed. Um, and you know, he's, he's climbed a lot. So I'd love to get out and give that a go and, and try and build up a, a kind of a, a list of confidence, a list of mountains that will give me the confidence I need to go, okay, I think I'm ready to go and give this another go. And in the meantime, of course, you've got to keep the bank manager happy and get on with life as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, John, what do you think? It's an incredible story, man. Oh, amazing. I'm, I'm, I, I learned a lot more, more today, Paul, uh, about, about your experience and, uh, you know, the background too. I mean, we've, we've talked a bit over the years, but, uh, not in this, not in this depth. And, um, yeah, it's, it, spirit of adventure and you know sometimes it, it brings that more often than not it brings us wonderful uh experiences and growth and uh, other times there's some tragedy and mm-hmm. um you know it it's it's the, the spectrum of life right the full palette and the full power of the rainbow of emotions and, and experiences and people you meet and to me that's been one of the biggest uh positive impacts uh in my experience in the mountains and uh I'm better for for knowing both of you 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 two. Um, one one thing I did want to ask you about, Paul, um, is along the way this hasn't been just you know for your own uh, benefit. I know you've raised a, a a significant amount of money for for causes as well. Was that something that you planned on doing from the very outset uh, of your Seven Summit stream? Uh, or were you doing that before uh, in any you know significant way? Um, and, 
you know, how did that start? How did that become part of the, of the project? And, and also, are, are you still, uh, is that still open? You're still raising money for, for some of those organizations? That started, I guess, with the first of the seven. Um, I can't quite recall what the trigger was for us deciding on the, we, we had a different uh, charity for every one. And I can't quite remember why we decided to do that or why we decided on that charity. Um, but after we'd done it for Kilimanjaro, it seemed like a good idea that we could harness people's want to give towards charity by saying, we'll do this really dreadfully awful thing. Uh, you know, we, we'll, we'll haul ourselves up mountains for three weeks if you give us like 20 bucks. And people seem to be up for that. Um, now, we were very clear from the start that we didn't want a penny of any of that to go towards the ex expeditions. We pay for our expeditions. The money goes to the charities. And there is sometimes, like, there is a bit of a melding of that that goes on that I just don't like. Um, you know, if, 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 there's, there's, there's an element of, okay, well, we're going to collect for charity. And if we reach this level where we can pay for our expedition, then everything above that goes to charity. That's just BS. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we don't do that. Um, but people were very attracted to what we were doing at a level that we could earn the, raise the money that we did. The reasons for each charity in each case was just dependent on what happened on that day. Um, I worked in America and the company I worked for in Connecticut, the uh, CFO had uh, was diagnosed with cancer. So we had the Susan G. Komen Foundation for that one. There was another one where one of our friends had one of his young kids died. So we had a charity for young kids. So it, it really moved depending on the circumstances that we encountered and our preference on that day for what might be the best charity. Um, it, it has been very rewarding to be able to do it. Um, we haven't done it since. Uh, we usually try and do it with one of the summits, um, but you know, the next summit that we do, the next big one that we do, certainly it'll be something that I'll reopen and off we go again. Um, yeah, people respond to it. So why, yeah. would you not, why would you not want to use that opportunity these people over here would love that. So yeah, okay, well, I'll raise the money. Here it is. Um, it's very fulfilling as well. And it doesn't put you under any pressure. It's very different from trying to chase sponsorship where when you, you know, chasing sponsorship is like the dog that chases the car. What do you do when you get the car? You know, um, chasing sponsorship, you get the sponsorship and then you have all the pressures that go with having the sponsorship and all of the complexity that comes with that, especially when you're on your summit run. Um, so, the lesson I've taken away is that the fundraising for charity bit is actually not difficult. The, the bit you've got to really watch yourself with is trying to approach sponsorship and whether you should or not do any sponsorship and the consequences that come with taking on sponsors and the pressure you're going to have to achieve your goal with that on your back as well. So that's one of the pressures. The other pressure is obviously when you, when you tell a lot of people that you're going to do an expedition and you make it very public, you do pile a lot of pressure on yourself. Mm -hmm. do the expedition so if i was going back to the north side i would definitely raise money for charity definitely not try and get any sponsorship and definitely not tell anyone until i came back <laughs> i just have to figure out how to do the charity bit and they're not telling anyone <laughs> yeah right <laughs> why wouldn't you tell anyone i'm curious what the fear is there i think you put yourself under a lot of pressure to continue telling people while you're on the mountain what you're okay. doing uh, um, yeah. And like one of the most reminding people, right? It's reminding just, people, and you know, you, you go up to the if you go up to the Kumbu Valley on any season now in Everest and walk into a tea house, 
the one thing you will see more than anything is people perplexed and annoyed and frustrated that they cannot get sufficient Wi-Fi. Or, ch or charging. Or charging. <laughs> or electricity. <laughs> you know, so I remember when we done Denali, we got to Talkeetna, and when we were just before we got on the plane to, to get on the ice, they took our phones from us, put them in a sealed bag, and threw them behind the desk at Talkeetna. End of tech. What a tremendous journey that was. <laughs> you know, so I think I'd like to move back towards a less tech way of doing it uh, and just not have to constantly update yeah. Facebook, update all these things. They have their place. Look, at uh, there's a lot of sense in trying to encourage companies to pay for your expedition rather than having to use your own money to do it, right? I'm not a fool. There's a lot of sense to that. But you really have to agree a package whereby you're not you know, constantly just mm -hmm. at the behest of people while the expedition is going on. You've yeah. got to give yourself that freedom while it's going on to unplug. And the more you can unplug, I think the more successful the expedition will be. Um, but that's becoming a bit like trying to avoid the crowds. That's becoming significantly harder to do now. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, in 2015, did you have access to like satellite phones or anything where you could communicate with your family and, and let them know you were okay? Yeah, I, I got I grabbed the sat phone maybe about half an hour after it happened just to let them know. And we had a, we had a system set up um, because the previous year when something happened, we really weren't expecting anything to happen at all. Um, and we hadn't a system in place that would allow us to beat the mainstream media getting to our family first. So, you know, mm. our family found out about the disaster on Everest when they switched on the radio in the morning mm. and it was the first piece of news on Irish news. It's not what you want to have happen. Right. So we had a system this time where I would phone my brother. He would walk, you know, to my mom's room. He would wake her up and he would start the sentence with, he is fine. And then he would tell from there. So, and that's what he'd done. So we had something of a system in place to disseminate information this time, which required the one call. And when I gave a call, I would be clear, look, at, I don't know when I'll be able to call again, but when I can, I will. And you shouldn't worry in the meantime. I have, you know, and I give them the circumstance so that I'm fine. This has happened. We're all fine. This is what we're going to try and do. Yada, yada, yada. When I get to this point, then I'll try and contact you again. Um, so we did, it's very important to have the sat phone and trackers and these different things. People, it, I think there's a difference between deciding that you want to dislocate yourself from the social media aspect of climbing and wanting to completely detect yourself. I don't think it's wise nowadays to climb detect. Right. You know, you really need the sat phone. You're, you, it, it would be willfully, you know, stupid to wander into high mountains without a sat phone and a tracker. Um, so certainly that tech, I welcome. It's, it's the whole, it's, it's the stuff that draws you away from the expedition that I think we have to get the right balance on. Some people do it tremendously well, by the way. Some people have a great ability to just, you know, focus intensely while they're at base camp on the 10 minutes they need to push something out and then close the laptop and never do it again for days and never look at anything again for days. And that's, that's a good discipline to have. Those people are better prepared for that expedition than perhaps other people are. Even though, even though it's a non-mountaineering element of it, that, that that is the case it's it's part of your preparation to work out how to get all that stuff right before you go mm -hmm. i think maybe you focus on a one-way communication those people that do it well they're pushing stuff out in brief brief blocks of information and not worrying about checking the comments and and you know and they're also they have somebody on the other side who's taking this 
just this bunch of information that's been sent and then they're adding photographs to it and they're but they're not doing that on the ground over where they are so it's important that that sort of thing going as well there's a way to do it really well um but you want you want to see how it's done badly wander in and out of the tea houses on the way to base camp um in april you'll see it <laughs> how many people liked my post John, I don't know why that this this part of the conversation makes me think back to Jennifer and her worries with you out on the Nolan's course. And I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. And, you know, her her sort of extreme worrying is is certainly warranted. But um, yeah, just it, it makes me think of of uh, that time uh, last summer. So and she she takes on the, the role of, you know, of cheering me on through social media. Right. And getting people yeah. and she's able to tell me and, and it does buoy me. You know, she's like, so many people are, you know, engaged and, you know, they're, they're rooting for you and they're, you know, they're so psyched for you and pushing you on. And, you know, when I'm feeling like out, like I'm like ready to punch out and uh, it does help, you know, it just gives you a little bit of energy just to know that there are other people that are sending energy your way. And they're on the expedition with you as well. Like, yeah. especially, especially your other half, like my wife, Rima is, climbing every bit of these mountains from here that I'm climbing over there, you know? So, and, and she's also like, I think this is probably true for you, John, as well. There is the thought in their head, if he doesn't make it this time, <laughs> I'll have to put up with him talking about how he hasn't made it this time. So they're kind of hoping to God above that you're going to get it this time, you know? So, because they'll have to work out and there's a reality of having to work out how you deal with somebody's disappointment when it's a multiple disappointment. And as maybe you know this too, climbing something for the first time is hard. Climbing for something for the second time is tricky. Climbing something for the third time comes with so much more difficulty. Baggage. A number of different ranges. Um, you know, at, at one level, you cannot fail. This is your third time. It's a charm, for God's sake. <laughs> you know, so, you know, you've, they're, they're hoping so much more than maybe at other times that this is the one. You're going, this is going to happen this time so they carry all that weight as well so uh, thank god we're married to amazing people you know mm -hmm. adam and i can both relate to that i, I know god bless our ladies yeah for sure <laughs> um, now if this is their podcast they're all saying we're all married to complete lunatics oh totally absolutely correct yeah yeah 100 percent. yeah yeah john i know you felt that over the summer <laughs> uh, yeah it's it's fresh <laughs> back and i'm just going back and reading my own blog posts too to bring some of that back yeah well you know it's all part of the journey like failure is is a big part of success you know it's just going to happen along the way um you can't be successful at 100 percent of the attempts there's going to be failure in there somewhere so it's just what you do with that you can you can pick yourself up and learn from it and and, and keep going or you can mm -hmm. say i'm not the type of person that can do that sort of thing and you can just hunker down and you know there's there's nothing wrong with either one but there's different different avenues you can take there and you got to learn something from it so it's like ice skating where you have to learn how to fall you know and I think if a lot of folks who say go for Everest as their one big peak in life and maybe do it without having any preparation are like the ice skater who's never fallen. They've been lucky. And, you know, when you look at it from the outside in, there's a lot of good skating going on there. They've never fallen. So, mm -hmm. you know, you better hope they don't because they won't know what to do. Yeah. Um, and that's the fear I have every season is that if the weather really changes direction, 
how many people won't know what to do? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and that is unfortunately becoming a larger amount of people every year. So it's the, it's the lack of preparedness. Maybe that's again, the engineer in me, but I think there's just no excuse for the lack of preparedness. And I don't understand how you could have that without having time as well. Yeah. yeah. And it does sound corny, but there's so much value in that journey of, you know, oh, the, for sure. to the training and, and the learning about ourselves and equipment and all of that stuff. I, I dig all that. Uh, and the failures, uh, you know, it doesn't feel great necessarily at the time, but, mm-hmm. you know, in retrospect, that is building up just this foundation of experience and who you are. Uh, and, you know, I'm not putting down people who, you know, go and that's, that's their one big thing at all. That's, that's their experience. But for me, uh, that thick foundation of experience and meeting people and having, and being, meeting people who inspire me, you know, ongoing, like you guys, that's, that's invaluable to me. And I didn't really know that. 15 years ago. Right. I know that now because I've experienced and I know how important it is to, to my core uh, of values. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's just hugely important. I do the, I do stats for um, all of the Irish that have climbed the 8,000 meter peaks. I, I'm kind of, I've become the amateur historian for that. I don't know how, but I have. Um, and one of the interesting things was looking at all the people who had attempted to climb Everest from Ireland and failed. Because you always think you're the only one, and then you think I'm the only one that's done it twice. Nah, there's there's a lot of people that went three times, four times. One guy got it on his fifth go. Wow. Um, and there are a lot of people who didn't get it on their first and went back to try again and again and again. So you know, you look at that, and nobody will have heard of their names, and everyone will know the five or six people that have the best website or way of promoting themselves. You think, oh, there's a big, there's a, there's actually a solid rock of experience here in terms of the people that have given this a go and eventually got there. So I like to think it'll be sweeter, you know, when you do eventually get there, but Mm -hmm. if you don't get there, you know, it'll throw you in a different direction. And for me, you know, I've been doing it for what 15 years now. It's been 15 years of very rich experiences. It's been 15 years. That's been really good for my health. It's been 15 years. That's been invaluable for my mental health. Um, you know, and I'm much more resilient as a result of it. And when a thing like a pandemic swings around and hits you in the face, you're damn glad you had those 15 years behind you, I tell you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, those are all byproducts of, of the big adventure, you know, like when you're at the bottom of the very first mountain looking up, there might be a little bit of ego involved. Like I'll be this guy who did this thing, you know, and it, the views are going to be beautiful from the summit and, and, maybe I'll look at the world differently or people will look at me differently, but then along the way, there's all these friendships that you make and um, you know, your, your health improves and uh, just so many, so many other blessings come, come along the way with, with the journey. So that's, yeah, it's important that you recognize those and, and, you know, take time to be thankful for those. I mean, that's, that's, that's it right there. That's, that's the biggest part. Sure. Absolutely fascinating conversation paul this is yeah i really appreciate you taking the time to uh sit down and and tell us your story it's it's a powerful story um i know you've had a chance to get it out in the public a few times um have you ever thought about writing a book writing a screenplay or or doing doing something to to continue to get this story out there or 
I have a, I, my libraries here. I have a few books in the library from people that have written about it. Okay. Um, I just don't know that I have anything more to add sure. than what's ever been said about it. I also, I like to finish the thing before I think about reflecting on the thing totally. too much. Yeah. Like I, I have, over the past five years, I have felt guilty at times about talking about something I haven't finished. <laughs> you know, I'm talking about an experience that didn't succeed, but it was a different experience. So it has its own merit. Um, but no, I think I'd like to finish it and then see. I've often thought that the most interesting book that you could write about Everest or the Seven Summits is to, is to write a series of children's books about it. You know, and to, and, and to cartoonize the thing and get more people fascinated about the whole thing at That's that true. level yeah. than writing, you know, because the, the problem with Everest is that it's the biggest, it's one of the biggest, certainly highest political shows on earth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you write a book, you, you know, you had better have your lawyers ready and have right. the facts straight. Um, that can get a bit tiresome when your motivation is adventure and outdoors. So I, I, I don't know that I have a great desire to write a book about it now. Sure. Yeah. That's interesting. It's a good idea to think of it in terms yeah. of uh, a child's um, book and just, yeah, like cartoonize it and, and make it more, more simple rather than... I mean, Dora the Explorer has, has just... Monop she's monopolized South America for too long. <laughs> we need a European solution here. <laughs> Paul the Explorer, come on, man. <laughs> uh, John, did we cover it? Anything else you got, man? I mean, this has just been I a great have, conversation. I have one more very important question. Yeah. So, Paul, I want to delve into your life experience. You've lived all over the world, including the U.S. Have you lived in Scotland at all? Or I know you've been No, there. no, no. I've, I've lived okay. in England, Ireland, Germany, Hong Kong, and America. You live in the UK, you're, you're Irish. So bourbon, scotch, or Irish whiskey? <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is going to get me in some serious hot water. Um, I, I know what your answer has to be. <laughs> What's the truth the, the, for you? The, the truth is scotch um, and not the incredibly peaty stuff. Um, I'm more of an Oban or a Macallum sort. If I was to select an Irish whiskey, it would be Bushmills. I think it's by far and away, that's an Ulster um, uh, whiskey. That's by far and away, in my view, the best of the Irish whiskies. I think a lot of the rest of them you would use to make a cake. Um, but I, 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 or maybe if you were at a wake and you'd run out of stuff, but no, <laughs> the, the, the Scottish I think are, are way above. I'm sorry, but bourbon is, is for putting with Coca-Cola. <laughs> I like the bourbon, but I, I have I'm working on a bottle of uh, a Lafroid. Uh, That's a decent well. bottle there. The, the, the island, right? A little uh, not at, I guess not quite as peaty. And I have not, other than Jameson, which years ago before I even got into whiskey, uh, I, I didn't like. But I need to go back to that. But you're telling me Bushmills, so that'll be the next one. Bushmills is good. There's a new whiskey called Teeling, which is supposed to be really good. Middleton is a good one. Um, but I, I love the Scottish whiskies. I was out on the island of Isla a few, what was it, two years ago, where Lafroy is from and Lagavulin and all the rest. Of it. So it's a wild place. Scotland yeah. is a wild place. I want to go back. Yeah, I, I loved it there. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you guys. Um, super cool conversation. I think we're at a couple hours, so it's probably a good place to put a bow on this, but I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, Paul, please keep in touch. Um, and, uh, 
yeah, maybe we can uh, do this again after you uh, get that seventh summit, you know, whenever it is, even if it's five, 10 years down the road, let's get you back on. Uh, we'd love to hear about it. So um, good luck in future journeys. And uh, thanks so much for doing this. You guys, it's pl true pleasure. Yeah, man. Paul, come Thank to you. Colorado. Hey, hey oh, Rima, hi, Beth. Oh, definitely. Colorado's high on the list. Yes. Come on out. Let us know when you're coming. We'll get you up some of the, some of the little peaks we got going out here. <laughs> we'll have a blast. For sure. All right. Thanks guys. Appreciate See you guys. Both. It's been great. Great one. See, good. Great seeing yeah. you Paul. Bye Adam. All Bye. right. Take care. All right. That's a wrap for this week. Paul and John, I want to thank you guys for coming on the show. Uh, Paul was in London while we recorded this. So I think it was about 3 PM for him and it was about 8 AM for John and I. Uh, I sure appreciate and respect the hell out of you guys. And uh, yeah, uh, I dug this show, man. And I hope you guys did too. Uh, I also want to thank you guys, the listener, for listening to the show. Uh, whether you're on your run or your commute to work or you're at the gym, I sure appreciate you guys. This podcast is brought to you by Big Things Crewing. Are you thinking about your first 5K marathon or ultra marathon? Do you want to do big things and be a part of our tribe? Big Things Crewing is here for you. We started this company in 2019 with the goal of helping people do epic shit. We offer coaching programs and training plans from beginner to elite, as well as offer crewing and pacing for ultramarathon runners. We've got a bunch of folks that are doing their first Leadville 100 this summer, and we're helping some of them with coaching, and we're helping some other ones with pacing. If you need us, reach out. We've got a couple spots left for Leadville this year. Or maybe you've got another race on the calendar that's freaking you out. Let us know. We've been there. I love the sport of ultramarathon, and I love seeing people cross the finish line. It excites me. It turns me on. And if I can be a small part of your story, it would feed my soul in a big way. We know how to get you to rally and get you into that finish line. We want to help. We want you to do big things. Look us up, big-things-crewing.com. And for this episode only, if you mention this podcast right here, episode number 69 with Paul Debonet, we will get you a 20% discount on your coaching plan or a pacer for your race this year. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to our podcast so that you are notified when a new episode drops. If you like what you hear, please, please write us a review or share it on social media. Believe it or not, this podcast is a lot of work and I can use all the support I can get. It helps us to be seen among the zillions of podcasts out there. Uh, these conversations are also on YouTube. Head on over there and subscribe as well. Find us on the social media platforms as Big Things Crewing. And as always, our website is big-things-crewing.com. I want to thank Athletic Brewing for making this possible. 20% discount code is McRobertsA20. I'm hooking you guys up with a discount on the best non-alcoholic beer around. I also want to thank Will and On Pace Wellness you want to dial in your nutrition and do big things this year, look up On Pace Wellness, 
Mention this podcast for a 10% discount. Remember, life is short. Do big things, baby. Pedro, take us for a run.